Gatyontev, Gatyontev, Lachayim, 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 Lavrocha, Lashon Teva, Limad Achsidis, Darki Achsidis, Tikoseva, Vesichosemu. That's the exact language that the Friedrich Rebbe writes and the Rebbe published at the beginning of Ayem Yem. We start a new cycle. So I think it's appropriate to begin the Fabrengen <coughs> with this mitzvah, with the classic uh, nigan of Yutas Kislev, which is Poder B'Sholem. So let's join together and sing a Poder B'Sholem Nafshi.
I was Zeche, as many of you are, to be at the actual Fabrengens, Yutaskisla Fabrengens by the Rebbe. And even though the Rebbe was speaking to Chsidim, who all knew why they gathered Yutas Kislev, but quite a few times the Rebbe would say and begin that we have to understand why we're here. What's the mitzvah sayem, so to speak? My Hanukkah, so my Yutas Kislev. So even if you learn the Gemara once and twice and three times, you still always ask that question. You could wonder why. You should take it for granted. Everybody knows what Shabbos is, what Yontif is, what Yitas Kislev is. So for those that don't know, okay. What about those that do know? Because you could know and also not know. You know there's a reason the Torah says Hayyim several times. So what does it have to say today? What is today? So Rashi says because when you learn Torah, every day it has to be renewed as if it's happening today. There was someone once by Fabrengen, and he said to the Rebbe, he wants to say L'chaim for those that are not here by the Fabrengen, who couldn't make it. So the Rebbe said to him, say L'chaim also for those that are here and are not here. Because you could be and also not be. But we call that mechanical Judaism. 
mitzvah sanoshim ulamadim. You know, we come together, you test Kislev, it's a custom, it's beautiful, you wash, a suda, meal. So it's always good to remind ourselves, like, what is the significance of this day? And uh, what is its message to us? And uh, above all, the relevant message. Al-Tarebbe wrote a whole Sefer Atanya based on the Pasuk, Karav Elecha Dover Me'ed. What does the word Karav mean? So many interpret it means close, accessible. So I once asked the Rebbe whether you can use the word relevant. I was teaching a Tanya class, and the Rebbe said yes, checked, the check. So relevance means it's personal. It's not just a theoretical, abstract idea. So what is Yutas Kislev? If someone asked you, a skeptic asked you, tell me, why are you celebrating? I said, the Rebbe went out of prison. Okay. Fine. First of all, it happened 224 years ago. Second of all, I understand for Chassidic Chabad, people who are, what about for the rest of the Chassidim or other Jews or other people in the world in general? Is there a universal message? And if you can't answer that question in a way, then it just becomes something uh, mechanical. You know, it says about the Megillah, Hakeira Megillah Mafreya Layotza. If you read the Megillah of Purim backwards, it's not considered that you uh, performed the mitzvah. Now tell me, who would read a Megillah backwards? Even though on Purim, you could say, some people say L'chaim, and uh, everything is topsy-turvy, so they may end up reading the Megillah backwards. But what's the, what's the consideration? So the Baal Shem Tev, founder of Chassidus, the teacher of the teacher of the Alter Rebbe, the Rebbe of the Rebbe of the Alter Rebbe, interprets how Megillah Mafreya, he says, is if you read it like it's an event that happened to Mafreya in the past, it's not current, it's not relevant to our current situation. So the Rebbe once said in the Fabrengen, so how do you reconcile that with a literal meaning? Because if you read it like it's an old story in history, you'll read it backwards. You're not going to read it frontwards. You're not going to read like it happened now. You'll say the last thing closest to us in our time is the end of the story. Whereas you read it like it's a living event that's happening, re-happening, and re being recreated, then you read it from the front to the back. So what exactly is the story of, of Yutas Kislev? Yes, the Alter Rebbe was arrested on Chofei Tishrei. The year was Tovkuf Nun Tess, which corresponds to 18... Seven, 1888, 1898, 1798. They could easily have done whatever they wanted with the Alter Rebbe. So besides the humiliation and the whole pain of that, then he came out of prison. Okay, so as I said, it's an event that happened then. And, uh, and even, even as such, is that why we call it Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus? That's a pretty big statement, Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus. Not every time someone comes out of prison do you announce, make it a Rosh Hashanah. So we know that the story behind the story is that uh, not the czar 
and not the government and not the ministers run the world, God runs the world. That if a man of the stature of the Alter Rebbe, who was literally pioneering a revolution, and we'll talk about that, at the time, was arrested, it meant that something in heaven meant that there was some problem, there was a challenge, or that the Alter Rebbe was doing the right thing. The Alter Rebbe understood that immediately. They even say that, um, that uh, Alter Rebbe was supposed to be arrested earlier, but Zusha said Zusha didn't want. So Fidik Rebbe says, Nasiche, that Zusha Nishgevot, so they didn't arrest him that. In other words, the challenge was already coming, and it was a spiritual challenge. So the redemption, the liberation, wasn't just a, uh, some random event, it was a vindication that what Alter Rebbe was pioneering, what Alter Rebbe was trailblazing, was introducing to the world, was vindicated. Means that not only should continue, but he should continue and develop it. And today we would not have chassidus. Here we're talking now 224 years later. Here, wherever you may be in the world, we wouldn't have chassidus had everything come to an end. Then, if the decree, so-called in heaven, had said, "No, the time has not come," and the Alter Rebbe was not doing God forbid the right thing, then everything would have been different. So there are real uh, implications here. But here's the big klotz question. They say klotz question. What is wrong with a Jew spreading Tater? You know, it's one, you know, I can understand a decree in heaven for us not spreading Tater. Plenty of problems we do. Suddenly, after thousands of years, there's a man that gets up and he's teaching Tater and Chassidus, and heaven has a problem with that. Someone has an issue. Isn't that why we came to this world, was to come into this material world and bring godliness here? And that's what Alter Rebbe was doing. Why would it be a, an issue? So this takes us to the deeper story of what Yutes Kislev is. And that is, <clears throat> you know, uh, just to use a, an example, you ever think about it, 5,700 and, um, we're counting, right? And 83 years ago, it was the creation of the world. Other Machava, two human beings, the only two people on earth, they're placed in the Garden of Eden. And they're told not to eat from the tree of knowledge. And they end up eating from it. Now, why couldn't they control themselves? As a matter of fact, there's an opinion, there are four opinions what kind of tree it was. None of them, by the way, is an apple tree. The idea of Adam's apple is a non-Jewish concept. It's a distortion. So the idea was either a fig tree, or a vineyard, a vine, wine, or it was chitim, chita, grain, wheat, or it was uh, an esrik. I mean, there's a theory that says, that Teisvah says, that, es, that by the opinion that's an esrik, that kemin chaya. So maybe someone mistranslated, they thought kemin means a tapuach. It means like, it looks like an apple, but it wasn't an apple. An esrik looks a little like an apple. That's a, a tangent. But according to the opinion that it was wine, that it was grapes, so it says in Svarim that had they waited three hours till Shabbos, they would have made Kiddush on that same wine from the tree of knowledge. So three hours. I know we all know you have a Yetzirah. Um, but someone says you can wait three hours and then you can indulge. So we know in a moment of passion, in a throw of passion, it's not so easy to control yourself. But it was Adam and Chava, Yitzir Kappa of God created them. They couldn't control themselves. 
And as I said, the consequences were, were, were dramatic. It changed the world forever. Had they not eaten from the tree of knowledge, Mashiach would have come, and the purpose of creation would have been fulfilled. And we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have a garment industry, and we wouldn't have a, uh, in general, uh, any type of work. We wouldn't need to, you know, we'd be learning Teir, and our, our toil and work would be in uh, spiritual matters, in Teir de Mitzvahs. The idea of the, the concept of a career, the whole world would have been different. So to, why couldn't they control themselves? So the answer is because the stakes were high. Imagine, two human beings on earth had a collective Yetzirah of eight billion people today. So we all know how powerful one Yetzirah is. Imagine eight billion Yetzirah all concentrated in two people. The stakes were high, and that's why it says, that everything in this world is like a parallel world. There's alter ego. For every Kedusha, anything in holiness, there's always going to be an equal force that's going to resist. Everything good in this world comes with effort. And Odom Achava, I can imagine, those three hours, or not just three hours, as I said, collectively, every challenge that Yetzirah has. And Yodinish Banafsh, everyone can look in their own hearts and souls and knows how, know how difficult it is. So every time you'll see a revelation in, Jew, in history, there's always going to be a challenge. Look at Matan Teda. Meshur Rabbeinu goes up on the mountain. God is going to give Chem de Gnuza, the, the, the secret treasure. The Teda itself, God's own Teda to, to the Jewish people through Meshur. And what's the problem? The Malachim don't like it. They complain. give it to us. We know how to appreciate it. Until Hashem tells Meshur, you go and answer them. Why does everything need resistance? The Jewish people became a nation only after what? 210 years of a bitter exile. I mean, it's the big million dollar question. Why does growth only come after pain? But the fact of the matter is, resistance, obstacles, challenges, is what brings people out, that brings excellence out of us. You could ask why God made it that way. It's another discussion. As we bring, maybe we'll get to it later. But the point is, whenever there's something great about to happen, there's always going to be a challenge. So of course, Alter Rebbe was doing, his whole life was dedicated to spreading Yiddishkeit, Teireh, Mitzvahs, Chassidus. But the stakes were high. Revealing Chassidus was not a small matter. Why? Because Chassidus was meant to be the antidote, and you could say the preventive medicine of all the ails and all the psychological and all the challenges that we would be facing that was beginning the modern era. Think of the time in history. Would we say 1798? So what was going on then? If you look at concurrent events, the Jewish world was going through traumatic, dramatic change for the first time in its history. Basically in the 16th century, 17th century, the Jews lived more or less insulated. Not at their will. They were discriminated against. They lived in ghettos. They were persecuted, expelled, or worse, from one country to the next. In that period of time was the emancipation of the Jews, they call it which you think would be the biggest bracha. And it was a big bracha. It would lead to freedom that we have today, to, do, to be as Jewish as we wish, to send our children to any school. But you know, freedom, like I said, every beautiful thing comes with a challenge. Freedom also led to the birth of assimilation. Unprecedented. Think of the irony. When the Jews were suffering and discriminated against, it was barely assimilation. The only way a Jew can get out of that Life was to become a mashumit. He had to convert. There was no way to assimilate. 
didn't exist the possibility. You weren't even allowed to. And here suddenly, as freedoms began to enter, the challenge was, can we still maintain that passion? So one of the reasons Chassidus came then is because exactly that, it was like Magdim Rafur Lamaka. It was the a, a revelation of a deeper dimension of Teda that would be necessary. Because when you're living in a insulated and uh, protected environment, so there's a certain Yerushamayim, there was a certain integrity that was preserved just from the smell of the chicken soup in your grandmother's kitchen. You lived in the shtetl, people born and died in the same town, there was no travel, there wasn't technology, there wasn't anything that we know today. So there was a certain innocence, you can even say naivete, but a beautiful one. Suddenly, well not suddenly, but over time, Jews are thrown out, thrust out into a larger Western world with all its temptations. Now you can join the music and art world, academia, culture, careers. So it was not so simple. That's why you had the challenge that, uh, that Jews did not know how to handle these new freedoms. Because on one hand, freedom is a bracha. Chassidus was meant to reveal, reveal a deeper dimension of Teda that it's not just enough the Teda as we had it all these years, but now that no matter where you go, you can always be on the offense and don't have to be on the defense. Basically, a deeply passionate and spiritual Not to say that it didn't exist before, but as we know, as those generations of exile continued, the Jewish people were also being worn down. It says when the Baal Shem Tov came around, why was he called Yisrael Baal Shem Tov? Because the name Yisrael is the name of the Jewish people. When somebody is faint or comatose, you call them by name to awaken them. And that's what Chassidus came to do, was to awaken the deeper recesses of the neshama to counter all these challenges. But it doesn't come easy. So now Tarebbe began teaching the way he was teaching, not just in a brief Tadus as the Baal and the Magid. There was a challenge in heaven. Is this the right thing? Will Chassidus be abused? There's a reason Premier Satera was not taught all those generations because of its purity. Famous story, they say, the Friedrich Rebbe tells in uh, one of the first talks he delivered after he left Russia, Tafresh Peches, he was in uh, Tvotsk. So it was Machoy, I believe it was Friday night, Pasha uh, Kisisa, is the Sikh in uh, Tvotsk. Mm-hmm. Friedrich Rebbe says there that the Alta Rebbe, the Baal Gulim, uh, you know, had a special, uh, special uh, place in the eyes of the, his, his great Rebbe, the Magid of Mizrich, to the point that when the Magad was nostalgic, which is Yutas Kislev as well, this is 250 years from the Stalkus of the Magad. So the d- different Talmidim was zeichet to the Tara of the Magad in different ways, and Altara was zeichet to be Matar the Reish, which was considered like the highest level, the head of the Rebbe. So the Friedrich Rebbe says there were two reasons why he was zeichet to that. He wasn't necessarily the oldest student. So the two reasons were one was because the Magad had said about him that you saved my life. And the second reason was because, um, uh, the, well, let's start with the first reason. So what he explained, well, how did he save his life? So there's a the famous story that everybody knows, but there are more details there than are uh, not so known. That um, when the Magad was teaching Chassidus, he would teach and explain, relatively speaking, it was quite unprecedented. Now, Pinchas Karitzer was a, a student and a, and a chaver of the Magid. He felt that it has to be more controlled, more, with more discretion has to be taught. So he would have uh, 
One day, a Magad was teaching, and they saw a blood chsidis, a page of chsidis, on the ground, which Pinchas felt vindicated because that's what he was concerned about, that it wouldn't be appreciated. Look, a page of chsidis is on the ground. And uh, as a result, he had like a kapeda, so to speak, on the Magid, and there was a sakona for the Magid. The Alter Rebbe, when he heard that and he saw what happened, Shidi Rebbe goes into details, the Alter Rebbe sensed that there's a problem. So that's when he gave this famous example, famous moshul of the Ben Chela, of the king who had a child who was very ill, sick, dying. The doctors had given up hope. And finally one doctor said that maybe if you take the most precious stone in the king's crown and you crush it and mix it with water and you try to get it into the clenched teeth of the child, maybe a drop will save his life, even though much of it may spill on the floor. So you're saying basically that when you're dealing with a child that's ill, the Jewish people, and you take the most precious stone, that the entire value of the crown is dependent on it, but of course the child is more important than everything. So even though, yes, some of it may spill on the floor, there may be a page someone didn't appreciate this it fell on the floor, yet you do it for saving the child. In a sense, maybe if you want to put in halacha, they could turn it to pekoch nefesh, When heard that, it says, he basically re- he removed his, uh, his wrath, so to speak, yeah, obviously, he was a tzaddik, a tzaddik and not a rat, Chaz Rosham and the Magid. He was on the whole process. So the Magid said, because of that, because the Alter Rebbe gave that moshal and, and affected the Pinchas, it gave me many more years. So that was the first reason that the Alter Rebbe was zeche, to be metayer, the reish. The second reason, not Negeel Yanenu, but um, just uh, the second reason that he says there is, um, if I recall correctly, Maybe somebody remembers. I'm trying to remember what the second reason is. Come to me. But the point I want to make is, going back to our uh, key point here is, it's critical to understand, you know, we take these things for granted. We learn chassidus today, morning and afternoon and the evening. Some people learn more, some less. Chassidus is not a uh, simple thing. Teirah is not, of course, but especially primis It's the precious stone and the fact that it was given to people like ourselves, who are not necessarily always on the holiest level, is because it's vital. It wasn't optional. It was vital for our own sustenance and for our own survival, and more important, to be able to thrive, to be proper Jews. So Yutas Kislev, therefore, was a day that vindicated that. So when the Magid and the Baal Shem Tov came to visit the Alter Rebbe in prison, as the story goes, so he asked them, what should I do? They said, you're going to be freed. You'll be liberated. But what should I do after I come out of prison? In other words, should I continue the path that I began? So they said, not only you should continue, you should increase. That was the bottom line. That, yes, there was a challenge, and yet, Al-Tarebbe prevailed, that the approach that he took, which was to bring this precious stone, even though some people may not always appreciate it, and some people may take it for granted, but it's necessary because it's critical to preserve the people, the Jewish people, and the entire world for that matter. So Yitzhak Kislev is essentially a critical day, not just the liberation of something that happened 224 years ago, it's something right now. In other words, we have to look at ourselves. All of us in some way or another, I'm not going to say we're all um, not well, and I also don't want to make it clear 
which I want to address soon, the chassidah didn't just come for, for a sick child. The marshal is not just about sickness. The marshal is about that, that as long as the gu'ula is not here, we are all are not complete. So essentially, we have to look at ourselves. Everybody here has challenges, every person on earth. Chassidus came to address those challenges. So whether you call it comatose or faint or not that committed or you have questions or you're just in general um, apathetic, you know, whatever it may be, fill in the blanks. Chassidus was given to us as not an option but a necessity to address every issue and every aspect of our lives. Should we wait? And every aspect of our lives. And if you think about it, you know, I've think about it many times. How many hours did the Alter Rebbe, did the Mitle Rebbe, Samach Tzedek, Rebbe Marash, Rebbe Rashab, the Rebbe Friedrich Rebbe, and the Rebbe, how many hours did they spend writing and teaching Chassidus? I mean, just look at the volumes that they produced. How many volumes? Begashmis. Try to sit down and start writing. Tell me how long it would take. And they felt that this was the single most important thing to do. You could, you could argue, hey, why don't they just sit all day and Chassidim should come speak to them, ask their questions, and give advice? They had Yechidusim, but that was not the bulk of their time. Because they felt what they're putting in this writing, starting from Tanya and through all the Mamorim and everything, this was the single most important thing they could be doing for their people. And that's why they spent so much time. It wasn't like there were many, they had many options to do. Like the Rebbe said, I remember a number of times, he said he could always sit privately in his room and learn. Why does he have to be sitting here and teaching and then fabringing and so on? Whatever the circumstances were. And you think about it, even if you respect a, just a regular human being, let alone a Rebbe, this is talking about Mesiris Nefesh on teaching Siddhis because they saw Siddhis was a lifesaver. When I say lifesaver, I want to say this again. It doesn't matter whether you think you're healthy or not healthy. The point here is not physical health. They're talking about spiritual. That we live in a world, again, we all have dissonance. We all have our challenges. Everybody. Even my two great colleagues sitting to my left. Oh, where's the other colleague? Huh? Perfect timing. We all have our challenges. And when the Alter Rebbe writes in the introduction to Tanya, that Tanya came to give advice, he meant it. Some people tell me, Avedis Hashem means davening, Avis Hashem, Yudas Hashem, how to put on tzitzis in the morning. No, but Alter Rebbe and Tanya talks not just Benodim Lamokim, not just mitzvahs between us and God, between us and each other. Talks about things, the end of chapter one, talks about things like arrogance, haughtiness, laziness, Later talks about anger, jealousy, hatred, depression, chapters on that. I mean, the list goes on. So I know when I speak this, I know in my own classes, people say to me, so what are you turning Tanya into a book on psychology? Self-help. I remember uh, I began that program that I began like close to 10 years ago, My Life Chassidus Applied. So I used the word psychology to my... Uh, Chagrin. Um, but, um, and I got a whole bunch of people saying to me, what are you mixing psychology, psychology called, you know, all there's all kinds of uh, secular stuff. So I decided to look up the root of the word psychology. It, 
actually means the study of the soul. So the next week I said, I want to apologize, I use psychology, so I'm no longer going to talk psychology, I'm going to talk about the study of the soul. At the end of the program I said, and by the way, if you look up the etymology of the word, no, Tanya is not a book of psychology, just like Tate is not a book of psychology. This is Dvar Hashem. We understand it's God's words, but God's words were given to us to deal with our psyches and with our souls and with our issues. It's not just Leba uh, Shemayimhi. That's the whole point. There's a beautiful Yutas Kislev. We talk about Yutas Kislev. Everyone knows Yutas Kislev, Tavshin Chavov. The year was 1965. And that was when the classic talk that Rebbe gave, which became later the Nyonah Shalteris Achsidis. Where the Rebbe begins, the whole Sikhi begins, what's Chsidis? And Gibbs brings all the different points of Chsidis. Chsidis came to refine us. Chsidis comes to change the person's behavior. I mean, the different things that he says, but the Iker, Etzim of Chsidis, or the core, is that it's Yechid, Sheba Nefesh. That's the highest level. Torah is divided, Pshat, Remez, Drusad, four types of approaches. And then there's the core of Torah, Yechid. And the Rebbe goes on to explain it at length. Just for the record, when they met, when they was published, so they actually called it Muhusa Shalteres Achsidis, and the Rebbe changed Muhusa to Inyana Shalteres Achsidis. So we were always waiting to hear when the Rebbe would come out with the Muhusa Teres Achsidis. So that's just Yechid is just Inyana, which means how do you translate that in English? I'm not sure exactly. Inyana means uh, it's the the subject. Muhusa is the inner personality. But then there's a, 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 a in Pedicutes there of the Quintus, the Rebbe addresses this very issue. It's a critical piece. The Rebbe says that since Chsidis um, we see comes also to deal with the issues that people struggle with, challenges. On the other hand, it's Yechidah Nefesh, Yechidah I should say. So is Torah given, or Chassidus was given as like a book of healing? Is that what its purpose is? And the Rebbe asks a question. We all know that Dovra Melech was punished for saying, He called the laws of the Torah songs. Let me ask you, what's wrong with saying the Torah is a song? That's like beautiful. Imagine everybody's learning Torah like it's a music. But the Torah is higher than music. It's not just music to your ears. So David was punished for that. So the Rebbe asked the question, even calling Teda Zemiris, let alone calling Teda something to, to, to bring us healing? Is that Eibesh to Teda, Chachmosei, Ritzene, Yizborach, Araisa V'Kushibrichu Kulachad, that Teda is one with God, that, that that is to heal us? And the Rebbe brings a Gemara, it says in the Gemara, Barasi Le'Yitzahare, Barasi Le'Teda Tavlin. God created a Yitzahare, and then he created a spice, a way to counter the Yetzirah, so to speak, to, uh, to, to um, neutralize the Yetzirah. And the Rebbe's answer is, is one of the fundamental principles, the Rebbe says, no, it doesn't say Tater came to heal. It says that Tater is so powerful. It's coming from such a deep place that it could even come into a world that needs healing and bring healing. In other words, there are wisdoms that are very powerful, but not necessarily can address the human condition. So it's not that's what the Tater came for. So when the Rebbe, and this answers the question, the Rebbe is taking all of Chassidus is just to save a sick child, and what about if you're not sick? What happens if the child is not comatose? That was not the point. The point was that he's taking the deepest part of Tater that can even save even a child that's on that level. 
let alone someone who may not be on that extreme level. And the Rebbe additionally adds that when you're talking about bringing healing to people, that's one part of it. The second part is that Mashiach, that Tachsidus um, is also Taimel Chaim Zachu, a taste on Friday. We're supposed to taste from the foods of Shabbos, as is one of the famous Minagi Yisrael. Some people already begin Thursday and Wednesday, and some even start Tuesday. Um, the different shalons and the different things. Um, so since Teirasa Shal Mashiach, Chassidus is Mashiach's Teira, so we start uh, having an appetizer. We start getting a taste of it when? Elif Hashishi, the second half of the sixth millennia. And the Rebbe explains, so which one is it? Is it coming to save a sick child? Or is it coming to deal with darkness? Or is it coming from this highest place? The answer is, it's interdependent. Before the dawn is always darkest. So in the darkness, you need even greater light. So the Gilead of is actually coming from a much deeper place. But the power of it is that it can actually address the issues that we all struggle with. So I'm not here to sell the word psychology. It's not my point. It's just a word. It's all semantics. The point is, is it relevant to our lives? And if you take a Vartan Chassidus, whatever it is that you learn, whether it's a piece in Tanya, or in a Mimer, or on the most highest sub sublime levels, you have to always ask one question. This is what the Rabbeim, as I said, they gave their lives to write. They didn't just write it to put down on paper an uh, encyclopedia of mystical concepts. They gave it to us as tools for living. The words of the Alter Rebbe Tanya is a practical guide. It's extremely profound. But its goal is not to have another pilpul in a posik or in a, in a Maim Chazal or in an explanation in Isaiah. At the end of the day, it's Lakute Yamorim, it's called a Lakute Eitzis. It's advice, Torah advice, divine advice. So we have before us this great gift. And when you think of it that way, it's not an event that happened 224 years ago. Yes, it happened 224 years ago, but this is as relevant today as ever. So unless we can say that we've infiltrated the world and every person on earth, every man, woman, and child is, uh, is their go-to book for answers to their issues, we have not yet really lived up to what Yutas Kislev is. And that is, I would like to suggest, the real mandate that we have today, the relevance of it in our personal lives today. And I don't say this just for the larger world that never heard the word chassidus. I'm saying it even to people like ourselves who've heard the word. As I mentioned before, you can be there and not be there. Just because you come to Fabring doesn't mean you're at the Fabring. You could be there and not be there means unless it really has that transformative impact. You know, today, everybody has their, as I said, issues. People, issues, marital issues with children, other challenges, internal ones. But we were never given a challenge we can't deal with. At the same time, we were given chassidus. Now, just for the record, in case anyone wonders, chassidus is not divorced, God forbid, of teira. It is teira. It's the premise of teira. So teira will tell you, let's say, halacha shulchan will tell you the mechanics. These are the 39 works you're not supposed to do on Shabbos. Chassidus will tell you how it affects your soul, how it affects your life, how to be Shabbosdik in spirit. So on Yutas Kislev, the first achlot that we have to make is not just to learn chizis, but to apply it, to make it personal and relevant. And, 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 and on the contrary, challenge it. 
if you have a challenge in your life, say to yourself, okay, let me see where I can find an answer. The Alter Rebbe says that all the answers are in Chassidus, so let me, let's find it. And if you can't find it, as the Rebbe would often say from the Yerushalmi, Im, im, im If you can't find it, the fault is not in the Torah, it's in us. So find someone else to talk to. I saw a note once from the Rebbe that someone wrote to the Rebbe that um, the Rebbe gave him some advice and they said, Trach good, good. Think good and it will be good. So he wrote back to the Rebbe that uh, he, he's thinking good and it's still not good. So the Rebbe wrote back to him, a kop kem You know, which means you can't put a cup on somebody. So I, I went to research a little what the story was about. And later I found out that the Rebbe actually told him, listen, if you can't find it, go talk to someone else. The point is the answers are there. And we cannot um, stop. We have to knock down the doors. I travel very often. I speak at different places. I always tell the audiences, knock down the door of your rabbi, your mashpia, and make sure that every question you have, that he comes and answers. So the rabbis always tell me, why are you doing that? You know, I said, that's your job. That's why I'm doing it. And that is the job. And if we don't find it, then we have to dig deeper. But to suggest that this is, this is what the Rabbeim gave us. This is what Yutas uh, Kisli represents. And that's why it's the Rosh Hashanah of Chassidus. Rosh Hashanah. It's a big name, Rosh Hashanah. Like uh, New Year, it's a Resh. It's the beginning of and gives power and energizes the entire year. So, L'chaim, L'chaim. We say L'chaim to the Alter Rebbe and all the Rabbeim for giving us Yutas Kisli and giving us L'chaim, L'chaim. And may we live up to and um, implement, do justice to the Messias Nefesh that the Rabbeim gave on Yutas Kisl. L'chaim, L'chaim. Anigin, Hashem, Anigin.
Lachaim, Lachaim. My Shverol of Asholem was a Heske Gansburg. He was Zeichet um, to many things, and one of the things he would, uh, after Abshmol Zalmanov, who would always begin the Nagunim, the songs by the Rebbe's Fabrengans, when he left Eretz Yisrael, so Abiel would begin the first song, and Maishver would begin all the other Nagunim. So he's one of the Balmli and Agnim here in Lubavitch, of Necheyach, had a beautiful voice. So he once shared with me, that the famous Osher Nikolaev and Nigan. A very uh, profound and heartfelt, intimate song, which I'm sure we'll sing after this. Um, but how did Osher Nikolaev come to this song? So he was actually at a wedding. A, uh, what we call a... Uh, I guess a wedding of, uh, you know, we don't like to use words like peasants, but it was essentially that type of wedding. A Polish wedding. And there, there was a klezmer, a band, and they were playing a song. And um, he heard the song, and he turned it into what was now known as Asher Nikolaev's Nigel. So I asked my shver, Do you, you know what the tune it was? So he said, yeah, he heard it. You read from Chassidim. Um, Shonekalai was from the previous generation. So it was not that long ago. So he sang it for me. And you could see from the way the song was originally composed and to the way that Shonekalai transformed it, you know, sometimes you look for uh, tangible and like palpable examples to be able to see what Chassidim does to something, you know. Like if someone were to say to you, okay, this is a mitzvah. And what happens if a chassidah she'id does a mitzvah? What does he add to it? It's not always, always uh, easy to describe. But I think this is a good example. So with your permission, I'll sing the few notes that I heard from my shvat, And then you'll see how Asher Nikolai ever turned it into what he turned it into. It's not, a, it's not a performance, so, you know. We have the world-famous singers all over the world performing a Yudas Kislev. I'm just a... Uh, yeah. So here's how my shver sang with the, with the, the, the tune that Asher Nikolai ever heard at the, nigan, at the wedding. And it was like a klezmer, it was a, what they call a, I don't know, a waltz or a, one of these... Uh, it was like this. Um... Na 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 na. One second. Na 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 so we have in the part of the nigan, which we'll soon sing the whole nigan, he says, One second. So back to the tune. 
And they have the poyos dancing to this song. Now imagine, if you heard that, can you turn that into now let's sing it.
Take this, uh, let's personalize this a bit. So here you go. Ay, 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 da, 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 ay, 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 we came. Ay, 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 So how do you uh, articulate that, you know? So there's a word that uh, I'm sure everybody's familiar with. It's called superficial. You familiar with that word? Superficial means uh, things that are on a surface level and don't have uh, a depth. In Oxidus, there's a concept of pneumius. Yeah, the classic example would be what the Rabbeinu Tam writes that words that come from the heart enter the heart. Words that come out of the mouth or from the brain go into one ear and out the other. So in other words, when something penetrates because it's coming from a sincere place, you can't... I mean, there are con artists that I'm sure can do that too. Um, but generally speaking, sincerity is not so easy to uh, fabricate. And it doesn't have the same like glitz and all the externals, but it's premiusdik. I don't know who coined the line, but it's a good line, they say, that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Years later, and this is even said in business, and tell me if this is correct business rule, that you're not going to remember what price you paid. You're going to remember how you were treated. You remember how it made you feel. For example, anyone came to the Rebbe's Fabrengen. So some understood more, some understood less. You can rest assured of Fabrengen of six hours. Very few people probably followed from beginning to end. But there were so many other facets to it. If you asked anyone coming out of a Fabrengen from the Rebbe, this one would say the Nigan. This one would say the Lachaim. This one would say... Uh, the Rebbe smiled at me. This one would say, I heard something. 
but I needed to hear. And some would say just the whole arum, just the environment. And some would say the pushing. Some Posner told me all of a once when he was a young guy, 770. So the Fabrengans, you know, especially sometimes the bigger Fabrengans was like crush time. You couldn't sit comfortably and you had your seat and your name on the seat and there was no one that came close to you like in the La Havre in a theater. And it was hard for him to concentrate. So the next Fabrengan, he decided he's gonna sit all the way in the back, behind the beam, where nobody wants to sit anyway. But he can listen well. Middle of the Fabrengan, the Rebbe starts looking for him. To say Lachaim, doesn't see him. So after the Fabrengan, Rabbi Chadakov calls him and says, the Rebbe wanted to know why he didn't come to the Fabrengan. He says, I was there, I sat all the way back behind the beam. Why? He says, I didn't want to be pushed. I wanted to listen, concentrate, calm, relaxed. So Rabbi Chadakov, a few minutes later, calls him back and says, the Rebbe told him, Yashemrim, that the main part of the Fabrengan is the pushing. Obviously, it's not just that. It's, so in other words, this is when you see something is true. Ask someone that goes to the Kaisla Marovi, I'm just using that as an example, and you'll have very different reactions because when it's personal, you know, talk about you love your children. There's no way to quantify what love means. It's on all different levels. So one of the things Siddhas did You know, one of the machshavah zodis I always had was that cell phones came out after Gimel Tammuz. You know, I was thinking, what would be by Fabrengan of the Rebbe? Thousands of people would every cell phone be off. I'm not comparing. By the way, it's not. I'm not comparing myself. I'm just always reminded. Just a little. Uh, um, I was once at a Shabbaton on Friday night, and I was speaking. And uh, suddenly we hear this call of a rooster, uh, you know. And um, so, someone, so, 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 so someone said, maybe they, they didn't serve the chicken yet. The chicken was not shechted. Uh, and then we found out that some roosters sound like cell phones. Um, anyway, so something that is uh, that what Chassidus did was. Not me mechadish anything, but introduced, well, let's use the, the word, uh, deeper love. Chidik Rebbe was once in Berlin. Rabbein would travel to Europe from time to time. And he was in a hotel. And a delegation of Orthodox rabbis of Germany, remember Germany had a community of over a thousand years. Frankfurt the Main and other communities, very uh, committed communities. So a group of Rabbanim came to see the Friedrich Rebbe. And they were in the lobby. It's an exquisite lobby. And they asked the Friedrich Rebbe different questions. One of the questions was, what does the come to contribute? You know, we're here for a thousand years at least. The never reached Germany. There are different theories why. But, and we are committed to Eden, community communities. What exodus come to contribute? And the Friedrich Rebbe answered the following. He said, look around. What do you see in this lobby of this uh, beautiful hotel? So the thing that stood out most were these very powerful, massive marble pillars. You know, big pillars, 
So that's where they pointed out the pillars. So the Friedrich Rebbe stood up from the sofa and walked over to one of the pillars. There was a lamp there and he shined the lamp on the pillar. They followed him. And he said, what do you see now? So now they were closer. They saw the exquisite flowers and engravings that were etched in the, in the marble. Why didn't you say that earlier? Because we were looking from a distance. From a distance, you just see the pillar. You know, from a distance, you see. It's beautiful, but it's not. You shine the light close. So he said, that's what Chassidus came to do. Nothing new. It's all part of the same Torah. You look at the principles that the Baal Shem Tov taught, and of course, the al Tareb developed further. Avis Yisrael. Avis Yisrael is a mitzvah sesed ha-raisa. Kal gadol Concept of anushama. What do you mean? The whole is based on the person has a neshama, which is a tzalim alikim, etc. Ashgacha pratis. Even the savas b'chol rega, the creation, perpetual creation. Machazish b'tuve b'chol yim tamim ma'isa b'reishis. already says a medrash tilim, and that's one of the reasons when Alter Rebbe writes, "So Peter Shabal Shemta, Peter Shalsa means that he spread it. Not that he was machazish. There are chedushim, but the principle was always there. Simcha." There's not one thing that's new. So then what did this come? Just to, just to repeat something that was there. Like I said at the beginning. No, like with Osher Nikolaevich, he took the same mitzvah, but you sing it with a primius. It's not superficial. It's not mechanical. You know, one of the things you see when the Friedrich Rebbe speaks in the Sichas again and again. You know how he bemoans. He says, the primius felt the primius. What is pinimi? You know, we know what a chitzen is. How do you translate a chitzen? He's my resident expert here. Not a chitzen, I mean, I mean, uh, uh, external, uh, superficial, you know, um, where what they say in Madison Avenue. It's not important what happened, it's important what people think happened. Perception, not reality. And then you hear the stories I don't know if any of you ever went to see any of you in Lubavitch, in the city of Lubavitch. So I went, I went once, we took my mother, she turned 80, so we took her on a trip. We went to my family. Anyway, it was quite a shock to see Lubavitch, but I have to give a little background. I teach a class every day in Ayim Beis. Before that, I was teaching Samach Vov. It was online. So one day I get a note from a a woman in, in Los Angeles. She follows my classes in Samagvov. And I saw the name and I saw the recognized, not necessarily coming from a Chesidusha background, but I also would tell stories, you know, where Samagvov was said, and I am based, all in the city of Lubavitch. And this small town in White Russia came with one of the greatest contributions to humanity. So she was clearly a woman of means. She decides she's going to travel to Lubavitch. She didn't tell me till after the fact. Now, she chose the, the right time of the year, middle of the winter. Um, but she went with her private vehicles, shall we say. Now, there are no planes that land in Lubavitch, you imagine. You, you have to go to Moscow, and then there's a seven-hour drive. But she took a helicopter. Okay. Then afterwards, she writes back to me. She says, I wanted to see this great city of Lubavitch. What does it look like? I said, I came. I had a guide, someone came with me. So first of all, I wasn't dressed for the occasion. I'm not talking about the cold. 
mud because the streets are not paved. And it was like literally going into a swamp. She was saying, I'm trying to find where was Samachavov delivered, you know? So there's a building there. I don't know if you go there. It looks like a building. Actually, it looks like when you travel, you know, on one of these highways, you stop at a highway stop, truck stop, you walk in, all there is is a map on the wall, and that's it. That's what, the, that's what it looks like. You're a little Anyway. So she said to me, she writes back to me, she says, I was so, first I was shocked. I thought I'd come to a city that's at least as big as New York, or bigger based on the teachings and so on. I came to not. But then I realized that greatness comes sometimes from things that don't, they're not superficial. It doesn't matter how big it looks and how external it is. I, d- I didn't know this till I went there myself, and then I realized what she was talking about. And then the same trip, I went to Petersburg. In Petersburg, there's the big museum that Peter the Great built. He wanted to show it's even bigger than the museum in France, the Louvre. So I'm talking about palaces of everything. And they use serfs, they use slaves, basically. You name it, every precious stone. It's like, you walk through these palaces, the wealth, the richness, the opulence, but there's nothing there. There's no neshama. There's no one sitting on the throne. It's all a museum, it's a museum piece. And it was like two days earlier, I was in Lubavitch. So I remember my image was, as a writer, I came up with a headline, when nothing is something, and when something is nothing. When actually, when nothing is everything, and when everything is nothing. So you could have everything. You know, like they say, today, they say people read more and more about less and less. Or they say, it's not that today there's a lower rate of, illiter- of illiteracy. It's that illiterate people know how to read. <laughs> you know? So just because you know stuff, or, I mean, since we're already doing slogans and bumper stickers, um, you know, people who know the price of everything and the value of nothing. The price, they can tell you the price of everything, but they don't appreciate. Uh, so when I, you know, you hear Asher Nikolaeva take a Negan, what you're doing is taking something which is so simple on the outside, and then you turn it into magic. And uh, this is perhaps uh, some tangible way to appreciate what the Friedrich Rebbe said, to see the flowers. So it's the same reality, the same world. It's the same Torah, the same mitzvahs, but it's a completely different perspective. You could, two people could look at the same thing and they see two different realities. That's what Chassidus does. It gives you a new set of eyes, like a new lens. You see things. When the Rebbe said, open your eyes, open your eyes. Everyone, what does that mean, open your eyes? My eyes are open already. But like I said before, the Rebbe once said to somebody, by some people sleep with their eyes closed and most sleep with their eyes open. Same idea. You can be there and not be there. Open your eyes is not, is it's not just physical eyes are open. Is that you see, you see a You see the things that are developing. You see patterns. You see deeper truths. And what is a Rebbe if not that? A visionary. The eyes. These are eyes that allow us to see things with a different way of looking at it. So maybe... Some of us take it for granted, but I think Yutas Kislev, it's a good opportunity not to take it for granted. That there are things we receive and where it's a gift. You know, everything's Ashgach Pratis. Why were you and I, Zechit, to know what Yutas Kislev is and grow up in a community? We're given a gift, a gift that, a vision of the Alter Rebbe 
formed the Magad and the Baal Shem Tev, and then the Rabbeim afterwards, to look at life differently, to look at people differently. I mean, just take the whole concept of what we know. How do you look at a Jew? And the Rebbe began reaching out, so-called, they call outreach. The Rebbe didn't like the word outreach. He didn't like Kirov Rechek. He didn't like any of these words. But it was always seen, one second. This is a Jew that is not doing any mitzvahs, not any Yiddishkeit, nothing. You know, save your own. What are you going out and trying to reach what they called Goyim? But that means a person doesn't even know how to look at a Jew. What's a Jew is a neshama. The famous story with the Rebbe Rashab is playing Rebbe Chassid with his brother, the Razor. So, like children. So, the Rebbe Rashab would play Rebbe, Razor would be the Chassid. And one day, the Razor comes into the Rebbe Rashab. Many stories, but one of them. And he says, What's a Jew? What's a Jew? So, he says, Aid, Aid is fire. A Jew is fire. So, he grabbed his brother's hand and said, If it's fire, when I touch you, I should get burned. So he said, when fire, rirtam fire, vetesinish rabrant. You know, there's a whole different way of looking at a person. You know, you see somebody, you look at the external, they may be very unlike you, and you may not even like them altogether. It's not my type. You know, people like to hang around with their type, their own types, whatever that means. And then when you realize, one second, the first foundation, literally second page in Tanya, the first psukim and chumash, tselem alakim, he's talking about a divine entity. I remember without names, a few months ago a guy came over to me, I guess he was drunk or he was going senile, I'm not sure. I don't even know if he knew who I was. But he started yelling at me and insulting me. Not that I don't deserve it, but, um, but I don't know what, he, what his intention was. I said to him, you know my name? No, I don't even want to say your name. I don't want to even, he said, I don't want to say what he said to me. I don't want to know your name. And, and yeah, it, wasn't, it was in front of other people. Anyway, I'm standing there. I didn't know what to say. But, you know, I wasn't going to argue with him. I wasn't going to run away either. So I kept saying to him, you know my name, you know my name. And then I, I walked a little closer. He says, what are you going to do, hit me now? I said, no, I'm about to hug you. He says, why are you going to hug me? I said, because you're a chilek al That's what it says in Tanya. I can't argue. You're a divine, you're a piece of God. Anyway, after Shabbos, I get an email. Someone who was there and writes to me, you know, I was watching it and I saw that you didn't like got shaken up. He was saying all kinds of ridiculous things. You could have easily dismissed him or you could have walked away or whatever. And you didn't even get upset. So, you know, I didn't want to tell him maybe I did get upset. I'm just impossible for me to show it. But the truth is, I didn't get upset. Because I know what it says in Tanya. Tanya says that which means that if maybe I, I deserved, maybe he didn't deserve to insult me, insult me, but then I deserve to get the insults. I heard from a bocher who was uh, in, uh, in Brinois by Rab Nissen Nemenov, the famous Chosser Rab Nissen. It's just a beautiful story. So, so the bocher, the American bocher, made a lot of trouble there. Especially they saw Rab Nissen as being a nifred. You know what that means? Not makusha enough. You know, as you get older, you realize, Halavai, you had his you know, non cautious. So anyway, so uh, middle of the night they were drunk and they were fabringing and they were making a racket. Abnissen heard, so he came to the Zal and he sees the Bochen, you know, they just, wasn't exactly, let's put it this way, uh, I don't know how chassidish it was. I mean, it was a chassidish fabring. So he, he told them, you know, quiet down, there are people sleeping. So one of them was really drunk and started yelling at him. Who do you think you are? 
Not only don't you let us, not only you don't go on Mifzayim, you don't let us go on Mifzayim, you know, they started berating Rav Nisan. Now, you know, I mean, even if uh, he could say he's from the last generation, but he's still a, a pretty uh, serious chassid. You have to have a little, <laughs> but this guy was drunk and, you know. Okay, fine. And he started throwing fruit, food at him, actually. He started throwing food at Rav Nisan. No, 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 I'm not saying names, but I know who it is, so. Anyway, but here, listen to this. The next morning, this Bacher, when he got over his hangover, and he's Ezgenichtet, sobered up, he was so embarrassed. He came running to Ramnissen and he asked Mechila for apology. What does Ramnissen tell him? I mean, I, he says to him, Mach nishtes, I'm always good head in the memes. Doesn't matter, it's, sometimes it's good to hear the truth. That's what he tells this guy who's, uh, I mean, it can't even put him in the same league. You know, imagine uh, somebody's not even in your gear. <laughs> but it's uh, an attitude. And he didn't mean it as a joke. He, like, took it seriously. Anyway, I'm not suggesting I was on that level, but the point is we were trained to look at people differently. I mean, you tell me. You know, we're all here, Chassidah Shaden sitting. I'm sure there are things that upset you at times. It may come from a stranger, it may come from a friend, it may come from a spouse, okay, it may come from a child. Imagine for a moment that you could just employ a Yutas Kislev moment, Chsidis, for a second. And instead of getting upset, ask yourself, you're talking here to So fine, they may have said something that you didn't like. Is that more powerful than the godliness in it? You know, you see, this, I saw it, and so many of us saw it with the Rebbe. That was never the moment. It was never being petty, <coughs> never being superficial, never being external, never the moment. You have to look at the bigger picture of things. And when you see it that way, besides it makes you more mature and more refined and more sensitive, this is what Chassidus came to do. It's not just the deepest Chassidus. It makes you more refined, more edel. You start looking more at premiums. You know, the Alter Rebbe says, Al tod nadam you don't judge someone until you're in their shoes. It's such a simple statement, but Alter Rebbe has to have all explanation because it's not so simple. We do judge people, even though it makes total sense. How do you know what another person is going through? Ask yourself that question. How could we judge someone? We don't even know what that person is going through. You know, recently someone told me they were on a plane and there was a guy, a father with like five, six children. And you know, on a plane, a long trip, the children were making such a fuss, such a tumult. So all the passengers started getting angry. Oh, be a good father, take care of your children. What are you, what are you letting them running around and make messing, not letting people sleep? And this, you know, children on a plane, you all know what it's like. Um, and was one guy especially that really was disturbed and kept calling the, the, the flight attendants, you know, we, got, what do we, we have to do something about this, what are you gonna do? You know, throw them out the window, what are you gonna do? Um, anyway, they get off the plane, and a guy goes over to the person who was the big complainer and says, I just want you to know that this man is coming back, Rahman al-Islam, from the funeral of his wife. And these are his little orphans. So I heard, the way I heard the story was this guy was besides, besides himself. He went, he, you know, he committed his life to help this guy, even though he didn't know who he was. We don't know what's going on by other people. I mean, this story just demonstrates it. I understand this is not necessarily you have to learn all the tifa and yonim to come to this. But if it comes down to that, if we can't look at ourselves and others with a little more sensitivity, 
then, then what, ask yourself a question. So what's the whole pool of chassidus? And make a little more edel amidus. I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to go now into uh, criticizing the system and everything around us. But I will say that you know, even in the best scenarios when we were in yeshiva and we learned things, the best, there wasn't enough emphasis, shall we say, on this matter. You know, you see today, you hear issues, bullying, jealousies, even children. What? I mean, you don't need chassidus for this, but chassidus for sure is like, that's what it comes to do. It comes to t teach you how to look at people in a more, in a kinder way, gentler way. And, uh, and all you need to look at is how they ever treated people. And anybody who came, was there a difference between one person and another? Was it judged by people how they dressed or how they looked or how long their beard was? On the contrary, you probably the longer the beard, probably the less kiruv, you know. <laughs> I mean, specifically like that. So, the Osher Nikolai of Nigan is just a, a powerful example. Any any Nigan, you know, we all know what it make, what it feels like when you hear a, a beautiful Nigan. So, it, of course, it's touching, but it's also meant to refine. The question is whether the Nigan has an impact after you finish singing it. That's the key. That should have a, a hemshech. L'chaim, l'chaim, l'chaim. So we'll test it now. We'll sing next edition again.
that's unfortunately a lot what happened. So when the Friedrich Rebbe came here, there were challenges, and uh, among them were that the focus here was money, career, build yourself a successful life, a prosperous life, be as comfortable as you can. Now, there's nothing wrong with all of that, except one thing is lacking. What's the purpose of it all? It's comfort and end in itself. So Friedrich Rebbe went in his own way, went to war. Not war, I mean, in any uh, aggressive way, but spiritually, to try to um, make that, uh, that Ruchnius and Yiddishkeit and Teireh should become not just fit in, but should be the prominent factor. So one of the things was, of course, in the school, in the education of the children, was that uh, Hebrew studies, the places where there were Hebrew studies were in the afternoon. And in the morning was secular studies. Friedrich Rebbe really wanted to change that. Because he wanted to show, just to show children, at least understand that the number one thing in the morning is the priority is knowing what God wants. And then you learn how to, uh, the trades, so to speak, physical, social, and political sciences. And, uh, and, and other elements like that. So Rabbi Saul Gordon, um, maybe well, was one of the younger people who was involved in the activities to try to persuade the Board of Education to change that. So um, when they were sitting and discussing it, they said, why, why, are you so, why are you people so attached to this book called the Bible, the Torah? You insist that it has to be right in the beginning. So yeah, just when you study mathematics in the morning, you'll study Torah in the afternoon. Like, why is it so vital? And his response was so simple, but was so profound, because it changed their whole, they couldn't believe what he said. He said, because we are in love with the author of the Bible, of the Torah. And uh, when you're in love with someone, you want to you know, connect with them as soon as you can in the morning. You don't wait till the afternoon. I was reminded of it because I was once invited to a panel. It was a Shabbos somewhere, and there was a panel, and um, and me and two other presenters were asked to bring three. If you're if you're isolated on an island, and you have only three things you can take with you, what would you take? So, so I initially I, I brought I, I took a, a chumash. Um, and the other two uh, panelists, so this one, uh, the one was a, uh, a middle, uh, like the, 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 um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, she was an expert on, so she brought some ancient texts. The other guy brought Moby Dick and some secular books. Anyway, as we were sitting on the panel, and it was the opening session Friday night, so I someone shook the table, and uh, one of my spartans fell on the floor. So I picked it up quickly, and I gave it a kiss, and I put it on the table. And everyone noticed it. It was a big crowd. It was a good few hundred people, 500 people. And the, and the moderator says, why'd you just kiss your book? I didn't see the other guy kiss Moby Dick, you know? So there I had it. I already realized I... Uh, I won the debate, so to speak. It wasn't a debate, but it was, so I went into the whole thing because 
we, we're in love with this book. You kiss something you love. And I'll tell you something more. I said, we also dance with it. Dance with it. I said, yeah, there's a whole day dedicated to dancing with these books. Anybody dances with book, works of Shakespeare? Or even if you're a Shakespearean scholar? So that idea that um, Torah and mitzvahs in Yiddishkeit is not just a book, even if it's a brilliant book, that it's a chayenu veirich yemenu. You know, yes, we'll run into a burning synagogue to save a Sefer Teir, even though it's not a life. You could always write another book. You could always write another Sefer Teir. You run in to save a child. But it's not, it's, it's not a book for us. And I can tell you that when you look at this, this doesn't come with any effort, because that's what it does. It teaches you to love something, to love Kedusha, not just to do it because that's what we were told to do. Yes, there's Kabbalah sale. But it's a whole different story when it's with that type of passion and love. Because then it's personal. Like, uh, and you can't argue with it. What were they supposed to tell them? Why don't you love uh, the guys that write mathematic books? You just don't. You may like the wisdom. You may love the wisdom, but not the... They tell, I don't know if this is a true story or not. They say when Pavarotti, the great opera singer, he was once doing a concert, and he decided to do what they call Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And he did his rendition, and brilliant, and the whole place gave him a standing ovation. Then, after everyone sat down, there was one old Jew in the audience, and he began doing Tehillim Chav Gimel, as a good Jew says Tehillim. Obviously didn't have the skill of a great opera singer, but the whole place started crying. So Pavarati asked the old Jew, he said, why when I did it, they all applauded me, and when you did it, they were all crying. So he said in broken English, he said, because Mr. Pavarati, you may know the psalm, but I know the shepherd. So there's knowing the book, and then there's knowing the author of the book. And that's a very different uh, story. You know, talking about chassidus, so I'm sitting among many illustrious scholars. I want to commend my dear friend and colleague, Shleiman Grimwald, besides the fact that he organizes Fabrengen and the Kailal, man behind it, and had many great things. But also, the proudest moment is that he began teaching Tereir. Right? And uh, early, is it every day? Twice a week. Okay, we'll get there. And um, so I just want to say one word from Chassidus. Since it's forty to Skislev. So um, this example I just gave about the author and the book. So people talk about that, you know, you know, Chassidus talks a lot about the Esospheres. The Esospheres, these are the ten uh, if you want channels, uh, instruments, tools that they wish to use to create existence. And there's all kinds of discussions and even different opinions in Kabbalah. Are the spheres salakurs? Are they nevroim? Is it yeshmaayim, gileahelem, eiris, kalim, eiris pshutim, eiris mitziarim? We're going to go into whole different views on how these spheres, what the, their role is. Are they kegazim biyada chetzev, like the Abish uses them like, like a tool chest? Or are they actually an extension of godliness? You know, huva chachmosiachot, for example. And um, when you look through this, it talks about, you know, so at the end of the day, we all know the expression is also when you daven to Hashem, it's a lovele lemidesov. 
You don't need the sphere to starve in Tashem like a child. Is what one of the Bali Nigla said to the Makubal. The Samach Sadiq brings in Sherish Mr. Satfila. I daven like a child. I think about only one thing. God, I don't need to know all the kavanas of Chochmah and Bina and Das and Chesed Gvura. And yet we still say, Lachashem Abdullah Gvura Vitiferes and so on. So, in talking about this, I mentioned before things have to be relevant. What is really the point? You know, so if you think of like an artist who creates a beautiful piece of art. So when you look at the art, you see beauty, it's beautiful. And you could probably figure out a little about who made this art, but not much. You don't know what kind of artist is it. Is he a father, is he a grandfather, is he a scholar, is he this, that? You know, you only know what he put into the art. Then you meet someone that met the artist. And they tell you, oh, this artist, he's a whole mahus, uh, he's a whole personality. As a matter of fact, he does a lot more things than just being an artist. That's just one of the little things he does. Then if you meet the artist himself, then of course it's a whole different. What Chassidus comes to do is to teach us not just that the world is a beautiful place and the art that God created is great. And the beauty of existence and how it testifies to God's grandeur, so to speak, but it also teaches you about the artist. What is God like? Now, obviously, the Abish had to reveal himself that way. It's not something easy. But when you think of it that way, then it takes a whole different take, that the Alter Rebbe, Chassidus, Yitzhak didn't just come to teach us another part of it, it's come to teach us what God is like. Now, that's because the Abish said, I want you to know what I'm like. Obviously, if he didn't want us to know, we wouldn't know. Hashem says to Moshe, no one can see me and live. You know, since I'm talking about that, the Rebbe, a very powerful sikha, I think it was, um, it was Shushan Purim Tavshin, I'm sorry, Taina Sester, Tavshin Memchaz. So the Rebbe asked a bunch of questions on that uh, posik, it's a very famous posik, that when Moshe was on Har Sinai, begging for forgiveness for the Jewish people, for Chet Eagle. So he says to Hashem, you know, it's a very, could see Moshe speaking to the Abish like it says, like a person speaking to a friend, which is also an interesting expression, very intimate. And then finally, Moshe says, Show me your glory, show me your face, basically. And that's when the Abish says the classic line, No person can see me and live. And then the Pesukim continue, and then the Abish says, I'll show you my back, but my face you'll not see. So the Rebbe asked a series of questions. What's going on here? First of all, the Abish already told him no man can see me and live. Why does he have to rub it in? Okay, I'll show you my back. He has to say no, but my face you're not going to see. You already said that. Second of all, what was Moshe's Havimim? What was Moshe thinking? Moshe didn't understand that you can't see Iliadite Vayisiv. If you were God, you can see God. You're not God. You can't see God in his full glory without some helomis or tzimtzum. And finally, why are we told all this? Since he was told no, we have to be told that Moshe asked and he was told no. You don't have to uh, be necessary everything Moshe asked for and he was rejected. And then there's a Gemara in Brachas that says that uh, the Hashem said to Moshe, Oh, you asked me to see my face. Very nice. I mean, I'm paraphrasing a bit. He says, when I wanted to show you my face by the snare, 
You didn't want to look. Moshe covered his face. Now you want to see? I'm not going to show you. So the Rebbe asked, what is this? Some type of game? Tit for tat? Like, <laughs> when I wanted to show you, yeah, now you want to see? I'm not going to show you. And the Rebbe's answer is, Mamish made it. I mean, it doesn't need my askama, but I'm just saying, it was such a unbelievable, simple, but also gives you the, what Chassidus is. And then later we found it actually in the Ponim Yofis, similar beer. So the Rebbe said, no, Moshe's request was fulfilled. What Hashem, the way he's supposed to read the Pesach is like this. We read it, you see my back, and the face, you won't see. You're going to see my back and my face, but to see my face, you have to not look. You see my face. My back you could see directly. And my face you'll see by indirectly. So he was actually fulfilling his request. And that's what Abraster said. When I wanted to show you my face on my terms, you didn't want to see it. Now you want to see it on your terms? You can't see it on your terms. You have to be me to see me. You have to be bottle. You can't, when I'm ready to show you that, but not when you want to see it. Then, then it's you, it's not me. So Chassidus talks about the concept of uh, bittel, and which is very misunderstood by many people. Bittel means like annihilation, nullification, meaning, you know, I'm nobody. Like, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many people tell me here in yeshiva and so on. I started, I had enough of bittel. Before I, I first have to be a somebody before I become a nobody. So I'm going to work first on being a somebody, a yesh, and then I'll have bittel. You know, they come to Fabrengans and they say, you're a, I'm not going to say all the expressions they tell you, you're a nobody, you're this, you know, no, no, they say l'chaim, you know. And you grow up feeling, okay, I'm a nobody, like the joke, you know, who, 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 think, look, who thinks he's nobody? You know that one? Everyone knows that one. The joke number 45. Um, with two guys, the rabbi and the gabbai, are both banging themselves in the chest, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. Then a simple Jew comes in, he sees them doing it, he also starts banging his chest, I'm nobody. So the rabbi says to the gabbai, look who thinks he's nobody, you know? Anyway, so... Bittl doesn't mean uh, nullification, annihilation. We're not talking about Bittl Chomets or Bir Chomets here. We're talking about the opposite. Suspending yourself to experience a reality greater than yourself. That's a whole different uh, story. I saw in the same for my modern Yiddish, and I'm always looking for the translations of words, because it's not easy to translate many words in Chassidus. I'm, I'm sure you're challenged, right? Go, go translate the Mala Kalam, Sevav Kalam, even Bittl. So Friedrich Rebbe, Translates bittel, koyecha bittel. He says bittel is ibegegemkeit, devotion, dedication, commitment, and koyecha bittel the craft of ibegegemkeit, the art of devotion. That's I think quite. Uh, what do you think? I feel you could ever know this stuff. Huh? <laughs> That's a joke. Um, the point being is. There's a sikha from the Rebbe Rashab where he talks very deep in Yanim Chassidus. It's a Yutas Kislev sikha, actually. By Yichud, you read it, you could see, it's like over the head of, of, of normal people like us, more mortals like us. But at the end of the sikha, is a fascinating line. The Rebbe Rashab, I say, he sensed that he was talking about these very deep concepts. So he says there, why do you talk about these very lofty and, and, and very sublime ideas? He says, When you know who you're dealing with, you have a different respect. 
So it's not always that you know the idea, but you know you're dealing with, it's like, you ask somebody, what does the horizon look like? So if they're standing in a valley, they're gonna give you one answer. If they're standing on a plateau, on a flat ground, they'll give you another answer. If they're standing 20 feet on a mountain, another answer. But if you're on top of a mountain, top of Mount Everest, you're gonna give a very different answer. So what Chassidus does is gives us a perspective of a reality that's completely beyond us. It doesn't mean you always get it. Like they say, but it means, oh wow, I thought I had it. No, no, it's just the beginning. And that's elevating. That's not, uh, doesn't knock us down. It elevates you when you see a horizon of that nature. It's like they say, in 1898, they say that the U.S. patent officer resigned. I think it's urban legend. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but it's a good story anyway. Um, they say he resigned in 1898 because he said in 1898 that everything that could be discovered has been discovered. They had electricity, they had the steam engine, beginning of telephone, television. That was it. Obviously, we laugh when we hear that. Here we are in 2022, and no one's going to say that. But there are many more discoveries since 1898. We have computers and nuclear and atoms and so on. Because the more you know, the more you know how much more there is to know. So, the Alta Rebbe, the Skissel, the Rabbeim, gave us a, a horizon that you never could have even imagined. And it's elevating, because it makes you feel, wow, part of something that's... Uh, you know, and under that, it's, it's a different story. You know, it's not like, okay, you know, Chavalap, you're like, okay, you know, okay, you're a bit a little smarter than me. Like some people say, God, yeah, he's, he's pretty good, but he's smarter than I am, fine. But then you start realizing, wait a second, it's not just smarter, it's like that scientist that told God, we don't need you anymore. Anything you do, we can do. So God says, show me. So the scientist takes a clump of earth, puts it on this, and I'll show you, I'm gonna make a plant come out of this earth. So God says to him, one second, use your own earth. You know, he's taking God's earth and he's gonna do this kunz. So the point is, that bigger perspective. I wanna share a story, but let's sing a nigan first that I heard from my mashpia, a melech, that really is, uh, I thought, quite uh, insightful in this regard. L'chaim, l'chaim, l'chaim.
a famous expression that you hear very often, the difference between Musr and Chassidus. And not, God forbid, in any way that Musr doesn't play a role. Sifri Musr, Tehidus Farim, Bigdeli Yisrael, that, and it's an approach. But still, there's two approaches to uh, dealing with any given issue. You know, we all can agree on one thing, that we're not perfect human beings, right? Can we agree? Fine, we found something to agree about. Or someone would tell me, yeah, I know you're not perfect, that's correct, we agree on that. Um, so this, how do you deal with uh, imperfection? How do you deal with challenges? You know, today, the lingo out there, you know, some people blame everything on their mothers, some on their fathers, some on trauma became another scapegoat. And not to minimize, maybe all true. And we have all kinds of, uh, either we have, uh, we play victims and blame different people or individuals or experiences. But how do you actually address an issue? You know, a problem. So we all know that usually the first step in when there's a problem in a person's life is called denial. You ignore it. You minimize it as long as you can get away with it. Then comes the next step is blaming somebody. But it all comes down to, and I'll just use the terms, two different levels of people's insecurity and fears. Nobody wants to look like a failure. Nobody wants to look bad. So if you find someone else that you can blame, it makes you feel a little better. It's not me. Insecurity. You'll see people are very secure. If you've ever met the secure person, I'm not saying there are many. But one of the things, one of the features is that they don't blame others because they don't, uh, they're secure enough to say I made a mistake and that's that and I'll try to fix it. And sometimes, even if you, someone did hurt you, Look at the classic story of Yosef Atzadik. No one, no, we all know that he was sold into slavery for 22 years, and you'd think here he had his chance. He's finally meeting his brothers. He could have had all the vengeance that he wanted, and he doesn't even says everything Hashem sent me here. I mean, to have that type of presence of mind, I don't know how many people can have, but there's something to learn about it. The Alter Rebbe says at the end of Perikid Beis and Tanya. From Zayar, the great schar of Yesu being Maivar al-Midesov, how he behaved, they did not let his own feelings get in the way. He looked at the, the bigger truth. But it's a classic example. I spoke once for a conference of psychologists, secular, and I told the story of Yesuf and I said, can you teach that to your clients, to your people, how you can go through the worst suffering and have everyone to blame and yet say, I was sent here for a purpose and not playing the blame game even if you have it entitled to do so. You know, so it's a great study in a human, a human being. How could a human being be that way? But that's the classic non-victim. In the words that the Rebbe said to, uh, I heard from Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau, the first time he came to America. I'll get back to the Muslims. I know I'm on point here. Um, so the first time he came to America was in Tavshin Lamed 1974. It was right after the Yom Kippur War. 
And he was a rov then in Netanya. Later he would become Tel Aviv and then chief rabbi of Israel. Now his son is chief rabbi, Ashkenazic rabbi. So the rabbi asked him in Yechidus, in private audience, he said, so what's the mood in Israel like? And he said, it's very somber, it's very down. People are very moroshcheled, depressed. Because after the Yom Kippur War, in contrast to after the Six Day War, you know, am I the oldest guy in the room? I'm the only one that remembers the Six Day War. Those are young guys here, very nice. Um, so I was a kid, but the euphoria after this, that's 67, was unbelievable. Because in six days, what happened, miracles, mamish. Israel tripled in size. The casualties were some, but it was mamish, nothing almost. <laughs> After the Yom Kippur War, it was a very different story. A lot of arrogance, mistakes were made. In the beginning, things were not going well. And then, over 2,000 casualties, which for a state, a country like Israel is a serious number. So the mood was very bad, and he told the Rebbe that. And he says, mention Zog, I don't know if he said in Yiddish or in Hebrew, and this is the way he told me the story. The Rebbe grabbed his wrist, Rabbi Lau's wrist, like this, and he said, By Eden, By Jews, we don't ask what will be, we ask what are we going to do? We don't ask, What are we going to do? Think of those words, it's very different. One is a victim says, What's going to be? You throw up your hands in the air, like as if someone else is going to solve your problem. But a leader never asks that question. A commander-in-chief can't ask such a question. You can't afford to ask such questions. There's a setback? Okay, figure out. What are we going to do now to move forward? We have to do a different plan B, plan C, whatever. So the two approaches to how you deal with imperfections, even on a personal level, your own insecurities, your fears, you know, we all have our stuff. We have our jealousies. We have our sibling rivalries. We have our parents, children, whatever, whoever is dealing with what. So one way is you look at the negative and you try to see what can I do to fix it. And the other way is you lift yourself up, like I said before, to horizon, to another way of looking at things. So it's like solving the problem from the top instead of like from the bottom. So I remember by Fabring, and I remember it vividly like today. The Rebbe was saying, imagine, you're going, speaking to a Jew, who is not yet on a revealed level of Shema Terim Mitzvahs. He's not performing, he's not observant. We always say not yet, and not revealed, all the different expressions. So you have two ways to speak to him. You can say to him, you know, if you don't keep Shabbos, you don't eat kosher, you don't follow Terim Mitzvahs, you're going to burn again. What's called in the vernacular, hell. And you'll be punished. And you know, there's a whole list. There's one that lists every possible punishment. And some people are masters of it. You know, they are, I don't know if they're sadists by, by, uh, by, by personality, but the people uh, who can tell you they're the science of every art of torture and, and the difference between Chibut um, Kafakela, and, uh, and all the other Dalad misses and so on and so forth. That's one way. And hopefully he'll get so scared, okay, of course, I'll start keeping Shabbos and put on film. 
<coughs> our second approach is, it's the Rebbe speaking, not saying exact words, but the Teich. You tell him, look, look what a beautiful neshama you have. Unbelievable soul. Are you living up to your great potential? And the Rebbe said, you tell you tell me what's going to be the difference reaction between these two approaches. Now they both can be true. That's not the point. It's not like what you say, it's how you say it and what motivates. Now just for the record, this doesn't mean that when you paint a picture of someone's potential, you know, I don't want to, well, I have to quote, um, they say that when Nixon resigned in the White House after Watergate, so Kissinger writes in his biography that Nixon looked at the painting of President Kennedy, JFK, who was like Camelot. He was like a hero, even though we know a lot about his life today. But that's what the perception was. So Nixon whispered, that's what Kissinger said he heard. When Nixon say, you know, they love you because you remind them of what they want to be. And they hate me because I remind them of who they are. You know? So it reminds me, again, the Al-Tareb said, this teaches how small you are and how great you can become. So some people are very aware of how small they are. They'll tell you everything bad about themselves. But they have no idea how great they can become. And then there's the others that have the illusions of grandeur, where they can tell you how great they can be, or they think they already are, but they have no idea where they stand. You need to have a healthy balance of both. So what Chassidus does, and this, again, New Kislev, is giving a picture of yourself or what you kick, what you could be, not just what you are, what you're capable of. And that doesn't mean we ignore flaws. Obviously, in any given situation, you have to look at both. But where do you begin and what's the primary? Where are we going? Because let's be honest, we all sometimes fall in the trap you know, a little critique of someone, it's a little gishmak. Like someone said, Lashnar is a terrible thing, but it's very good for your heart. Someone told me, you know. So everybody likes a little, you know, when someone else is failing, it doesn't make you, you're not failing so much because, you know, it makes you feel better. It's like misery loves company. But the truth is, what the Chassidus does is gives you a perspective. When you start learning what an Asham is like, oh man. So, it's not meant to make you feel bad. It's on the contrary. It's made to make you feel what are you capable of. So, you know, shame, there's a word in the, in the recovery movement called shame. But there's healthy shame and there's unhealthy shame. Unhealthy shame is when you're embarrassed of an alcoholic father. You're embarrassed of ugly secrets. Healthy shame is when you meet someone who you, when you're shiva with or in school with and look what they became and you look at yourself, hey, what happened to me? One shame demoralizes you and breaks you, and the other motivates you. The Alter Rebbe speaks in Tanya. Anything that demoralizes a person, even if it's dressed up like Kedusha and holiness, if it causes you to become broken and not motivated to act, it's definitely coming from the Yetzirah. If it's a sadness or something that makes you feel, oh, how much more can I do, and it motivates you, and the next day you wake up and you're driven to do something, that means it's coming from a good place. So here's a story I heard when I was in yeshiva in Morristown. So we had our mashpia, famous mashpia, a melech tzvibu. And I once asked him, I was starting to learn chassidus, 
And you know, it's, it's, uh, some, I mean, not all, all chassidus, but especially some places that can be really uh, very difficult and very complex and, and hard to grasp. So I asked him, why do we learn these, these very deep, deep concepts? So I wanted to hear his take on it. I remember he told me that now he doesn't have time, I should come tomorrow morning. The next morning he called me over and he told me a story. He said, when I came to Yeshiva in 770, I think it was 1962, he came with a Kfutsa group, first group that came from Israel to study in New York in 770. So our mashpia was Rab Shmuel Vitten. And I asked him a similar question. And he told me, I'll tell you the answer that I heard from my grandfather. I didn't hear from his grandfather, the name of his grandfather, who was Rab Gershon Ber Paharer, who, just for the record, is my great-great-grandfather. My father was Gershon Ber, named after him. So, a little nepotism. I guess I'm quoting family, but that's not the point. The point is the story. And he answered the following. He said that there was once a king, it's an analogy, a king traveling in the woods and with his entourage, and suddenly he hears from a distance this beautiful, beautiful melody. Exquisite. Never heard such a beautiful song. It was like mesmerizing, enthralling. Captures his whole spirit. You know, sometimes those songs, they just, you forget where you are, time and space, you're transported to another reality. And the king was like standing there transfixed. And then he says to his people after the songs, the, I guess the music's ended, can you find, go find who's playing this music? I need to hear it again. And they go, can't find the source. But the king can't get the music out of his head comes back to the palace, he can't sleep, he's, he's, he's so restless, he must hear this music. Where it came from, who's singing, who, where did it originate from, must he hear it again? So the king had all the resources in the world, he starts a, a, a search, a search to find his musicians. And then his own musicians, he says, I want you to play every possible song, I need to hear this song again. There's no song like it. So of course these musicians were masters and they started playing and playing and playing. Beautiful song, but it's not it. Another beautiful one, it's not it. Another one. And this went on for years. And he never found the, the, that original music, but he knew that whatever he heard was not it. So Geshem Ber said that the Neshama, when it's in heaven, obviously is in its most spiritual place and it has uh, experiences, tremendous divine revelation, ecstasy and music and song. You know, up there, everything is song. A soul travels through Negan. That's what the Alter Rebbe, the Balagola says. Called Balaya Shir Nechnosim B'Shir V'Yetzim B'Shir. Like Shir HaMailis. Why is it called Shir HaMailis? Mailis? Because the 15 steps in the Beis Amigdash, you couldn't go up a step without a Negan. Because for a soul to travel, legs Motorcycles, helicopters, airplanes, cars are not enough. You need a soul. You know, there are people who have millions of frequent flyer miles, but their soul hasn't moved an inch in years. And there are people who have no frequent flyer miles, and their soul travels. I saw Chassidim under Atala Shabbos. Six hours, didn't budge, but their souls went millions of miles. So... So the neshama up there hears this unbelievable thing, but then it comes down to this world. And we forget, you know, the Gemara says that in your mother's womb you learn the whole Torah, but then the, the Malach comes and pinches us 
on the, the top lip. That's why you have a cleft, like shh. And you forget. Your conscious forgets. The Alter Rebbe writes, that's only the conscious. The superconscious always remembers. So now we come in this world and we're looking for beauty. We're looking for a song. We're looking for pleasure. We're looking for love. Because we, we know that's, you know, there's something about us that hurt at once. And inside your kishkis, inside your soul, you know it. But you're looking for it. And every search in life, even things sometimes we look in the wrong places, even in very inappropriate places, you're looking for something. There's always a spark of kedusha everywhere. The problem is sometimes it's trapped in places we shouldn't go to. One of the big kedushim of the Alter Rebbe, the Balagul, is that the Nefesh Habam is that it desires something. Desiring Kayach HaMesava is a healthy thing to desire. The problem is the object of desire. What are you desiring? Now, I was, did some recovery workshops for addicts and I said the point here is not all addicts are very passionate. Mediocre people are usually not very addicted. But the passion is going in the wrong direction. They're completely trapped and completely attached. It's called attachment disorder to the wrong thing. The question is how do you separate? How do you get the attachment to the right thing? It's like a person who's desperately thirsty. So they, they haven't drunk, they're gonna drink anything. And if it's toxic, unfortunately, they'll, they'll drink it with tremendous uh, passion because they're so thirsty. What you want them is to be thirsty, but drink the right uh, drink. So every passion in life is the search for something true. But sometimes we don't know where to look. So when you look at this, even if you don't understand all the depth, what Rabbi Kershenberg was saying, that's what Rabbi Shmuel repeated to Rabbi Melech, who repeated it to me, is you're learning that what that music is like, and then when you go around the world, you can't convince yourself that you found it. Some people find it in wealth. They think I make enough money, I'm gonna be the happiest person. Some people think they'll find it in other pleasures and other desires. Something's kosher, not kosher, whatever. But when you look at this, you can't delude yourself because you say, it's a nice song, but it's not the real thing. So even if you don't know exactly what it is, but you know one thing, it's not. It's not the real thing. I remember, I mean, I'll say it on a personal note, I remember the first year after the Rebbe did not blow Schaefer. For every year my whole life, I only heard the Rebbe's blowing Schaefer Rosh Hashanah. As far back as I can remember as a little kid, my father took me to 770, late, early 60s, 60s, 70s. My we uh, shul was 770, it was small. We'd be on the rooftop sometimes by the skylight. So that's the only shofar I ever heard. I didn't know anything better. Um, and then came Chavzai Nader. The Rebbe had a stroke. And the next Rosh Hashanah, the Rebbe did not blow shofar. The last time was 1991, Rosh Hashanah 91. So Rosh Hashanah 92, no. So I, I forgot where, I, I, I probably was in Quran. I don't remember where I was, but I've been in many. And I come to hear the shofar, and what should I tell you? Um, I don't even think I'd call it a trumpet blowing. It was very beautiful, because the guy didn't, you know, the Rebbe blew chauffeur, he could sometimes barely get out the sound, it sometimes took 20 minutes to get the sound out. So if you wanted a concert, that was not the Rebbe Schaefer. But, but there are other people that take the same Schaefer, and it's beautiful. Like I said, they know how to play the instrument, but they don't know the, the author. So when you see the real thing, it becomes very difficult. To uh, you know, you may not have it, but you say, "Yeah, I understand. Beautiful, but it's not. It's not the song that I'm looking for." So, 
sometimes uh, realities are not always it means that you've seen or you experience it, but at least you know that whatever it is that you're doing pales in comparison to what it should be and what it could be. And as far as ourselves go, I think in dealing with our challenges where I began, you know, the revolution of this Kislev is that to look at yourself and look at others are what you're capable of, not just what you think you are, especially not all the negative things we think we are. What are you capable of? And not, in, again, deluding ourselves into ignoring things that have to be addressed, but it goes hand in hand. It's very different. When you, let's say you're running a business, and you tell your employee you made a mistake, and you start berating them and, and reprimanding them and punishing them, so yeah, you know, but if you show them what they're capable of and then say at the same time, you know, when I read once in a book that uh, a uh, guy run a big company and one of his workers made a big, big mistake, cost the company a lot of money. And the guy knew, that's it, he's being called in to get the, the what are they called? The yellow slip, the red slip, what is it? The pink slip. I was never fired, so. That's because I was never hired either. And just for the record. Um, I knew it was a color slip that I did. Um, anyway, and he thinks that's it. The boss calls him in. And the boss sits him down and says, well, I'd like you to sit in that chair, in his chair, the boss's chair. And the boss is sitting in the, this guy's in the electric chair. And he says to him, tell me, so if you were in my shoes, what would you do? And he was like flabbergasted. You know, he says, I, you know, I'm not the boss. I don't even know what I would do. I mean, what he should have, what he probably wanted, thinking was saying that I would fire, I would fire you. <laughs> but whatever. And the boss said, I'm not going to fire you. I look at it as a $40 million mistake, but a $40 million lesson, because I want you to learn from it. And you could imagine, you could imagine that after that, um, this person ended up bringing the money some, 10 times as much as he lost because he, he made him accountable. He didn't say, I'm ignoring what happened, but he also showed him potential and showed him confidence. Now, I'm not saying every case this is what has to be done. Sometimes a person is not competent, so you have to make decisions. But especially when you're talking about Yiddishkeit, you're talking about relationships, parents, children, I mean, if we had this attitude, even 5% of it, what kind of world it would look like? I can tell you from my experience, I mean, how many people who grew up in environments where they were always criticized, parents, educators, others, what do you think it does to a child? It ends up, you start believing it, that I'm really, I'm worthless, or not worthless, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm uh, flawed, I'm inferior. And it's like, besides that, it's hepechatera, is nothing to talk about. That idea, I mean, you look, you look through all the pages, all the stories, even when the Rabbeim would criticize. And I got my critique, I can tell you. I was a chazer and a maniach, and the Rebbe was a brutal editor. And I, I could tell you the answers the Rebbe gave us that were, I think, you need to have a little thick skin sometimes. Um, but I always saw it actually as chesed sheba chesed. I saw the Rebbe as a master surgeon with a scalpel teaching the art of subtlety and how everything has to be precise and I only learned from it. I have to tell you, some people, it was hard for them because the Rebbe could be very critical. But it was never, I always saw it completely with the deepest law because I saw the Rebbe expecting from us more. That's why he's, you know, he's not going to just uh, babysit you. 
I, you know, as an adult, I saw this is the way. This is how you get trained. You have a coach. He's going to kick you in the, in the pants. And that's what you want. That's how you achieve excellence. You don't want someone just telling you, okay, you're great, 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 great. So chassidus is all about elevating the human spirit because it's about neshama and it's how Hashem sees. You know, we talk about das elyon, how Hashem sees you, not how you see you. That's an interesting way of looking at yourself. Ask God, what does he think about you? I know many of our circles, religious circles, people think that God thinks of us terribly, you know. But remember, God created us. So, if anything, how does he create something and then he thinks terribly about what he created? That doesn't make too much sense, actually. So, uh, maybe he's in a gay bedover, but uh, he's invested that. I think that we should uh, look good. You know, that doesn't mean we can't make mistakes, but sometimes when you read the Torah and you read it superficially, it can appear that way. But it's the opposite. It's the people you love most, that you expect most, and it's expectations and accountability. Rosh Hashanah is not about judgment, it's about accountability. Who, who's accountable? People that you expect things from, not people who you don't. So, I look around the room here, a bunch of chelik alakam mamas. I wish I could hug you all. Um, not that I have necessarily extra vision than any of you, but I was around, I sat at the feet of a man who had that vision, the Rebbe. And I see the Rebbe, I look at the Rebbe, and the Rebbe embodied Friedrich Rebbe, who embodied the Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, and all the way back to the Alter Rebbe. You know, I remember just free association here. I remember the Sikha Purim and Gimel. Unbelievable Sikha. Where the few times the Rebbe would speak about himself. Um, and uh, in the middle of the Fabring and Purim Tav Shemem Gimel, this is 1983. The Rebbe suddenly says, um, you know, from site to site, Tachn Niber or Maklevt, Simitut Zichtik. From time to time you start, you know, you reflect whether you're doing the right thing. Now, the way the Rebbe spoke, it was a little cryptic, he didn't understand, but later, as he developed it, you realize what he was saying. The Rebbe was saying, is it the right thing for him to make a fabreng and purim, and everybody coming from everywhere to hear one person speak? Wouldn't it make more sense? Everybody should stay home with their families and learn and daven and fabreng. Why do they have to all come to one here, one person, meaning the Rebbe? Now, no one else one was wondering this, but the Rebbe decided he wants to share that he's wondering. So the Rebbe said, so you ask your Rebbe, how do you resolve this? So the Rebbe said, so he heard, I think he said then that he didn't hear it from his father-in-law, maybe. There's some different, some place the Rebbe said he did hear from the Friedrich Rebbe. I think Shavuos, Yud Gimel, similar story. Anyway, story with the Alter Rebbe, Balagul of Yutes Kislev. Okay. The Alter Rebbe was once in his home with the Rebbetson, his Rebbetson, and he sees out the window, Chassidim are coming. They want to come here from the Rebbe. They want to, I guess, hear Taylor, The Delta Rebbe suddenly gets all disturbed and he says to the Rebbe, What do they want from me? So the Alta Rebbe went and he was about to close the curtains and, like, not let them in. The Rebbe's, the Rebbe's words were these words, exact words. The Rebbe said, The Rebbe said, Gizen, Amdavda Machel, Zosayna Gutesov. She saw that she'd have to do something here that should be a happy ending. So she said to the Rebbe, to the, her husband, to the Alter Rebbe, she said, They want to hear what your Rebbe has to say. So the Alter Rebbe suddenly changed his whole composure. He said, 
If that's the case, I'll see and see. And he opened the door, and they came in. And we know the Tater was on Pasha Kisove, right before Rosh Hashanah, and he tabrained. And the Rebbe said, this is the Rebbe's words, he said, the Alter Rebbe doesn't remember Tzadah Nova, humility. The same Alter Rebbe that writes Kalim Risht and the Shablat of Tanya, that it's Mepisofrim and Pisefrim, as if the Alter Rebbe was some compiler. The whole Tanya is full of Chedushim, but he made Mepisofrim and Pisefrim. But the same. I mean, the Rebbe was talking, for us, the Rebbe was uh, the, being the humble one, like he said. But Hashgacha Pratis, I bet plenty, but plenty, whatever, that would get from Shver. So the Rebbe is saying, why is he making a Fabrengen? Because he's not saying what he has to say, he's saying what was the Rebbe says. I was like, you know, and the Rebbe wasn't, it was not, it was not a joke. It was a sincere, um, as essence that I am here to transmit that which came before me. The Rebbe, I'm sure, knew his godlessness and greatness. But again, it's all about something greater than yourself. You know, I mean, uh, you know, they say uh, there was this, uh, I guess, non chassid who was once giving a pimple uh, at Vartera and, uh, and he questioned the Gemara. And he brought what the Rajbo says and he slugs him up. Then he brings what the Maram Shif says and he slugs him up. He, he basically negates everybody's commentary. And then he says, when Igzog, and I say, and he gives his chidus. So his students came over to him and said, Ich, what's this? Igzog? Like, you know, it's the ego. So he says, So he's, he's saying, you know, so um, it's a little like dumb. So. I was once asked by a, uh, a non-chassid, he said, so what's the difference between a chassid and a non-chassid? And I said, I'm talking now the archetypes. We're not talking about personalities. Personalities may all be the same, but there's a, the, the, what, the, what it's supposed to be like, the model. So I said, a chassid takes the cause seriously. He doesn't take himself so seriously. Other people take themselves seriously. They don't take the cause so seriously. So... These stories all come to indicate, and even the Rebbe himself, that it's not about any individual, it's about something bigger than us. So I know many people will say, what are you saying? What are you saying? There's a Chabad, there's a concept of cult personality. Well, you know something, with all respect, that's not the Chassidus, it's not Taylor, it's not the Rebbe. There's no such thing, there's only one God. And the people who are dedicated to God are an extension of that. So as we say, Yisha Kim. It's an extension of godliness, but there's only one Eberstein. So the point being is that what Chassidus comes is elevates the spirit, elevates each one of us to see ourselves and see others with a different way than you usually see yourself in the mirror or what you hear from the street or on social media or wherever it may be. And when you hear that, you're never the same because then the expectations are different, the challenges are different, like I said before, the Rabbi Lau, then every difficulty is just a uh, opportunity. It's a way to achieve a greater place. So, uh, my father was hospitalized for a mini stroke in Tavshin Nun, or Shoshan Yom Kippur. And um, there was a fabrain in that year, the only time, the first day of Shoshan. Rabbi Groner told me that he thinks it was in honor of my father. He had his reasons. But point being, Ariam Kippur, the Rebbe called me, 
to take, to get lekach. The Rebbe wasn't giving out lekach honey cake for everyone, but he gave individuals. He gave me two pieces and said to tell my father they should have a sweet and healthy year. And then the Rebbe smiled and said to me, and tell your father in Yiddish, he said, when he'll finish his mission there in the hospital, they'll release him. So I went to NYU quickly. I brought the cake. I told the story. I told him what the Rebbe said. My mother started running around and doing the time or whatever, starting to speak. My mother called, my father called him back and said, listen, I'm the one on the mission. You're a visitor, you know. Anyway, my father did what he did. I guess he had his way. He had a gift of gab. He probably spoke to the doctors. After Yom Kippur, Rabbi Chadakov, who was the Rebbe's chief of staff, um, and he uh, was already, that year, he was pretty weak. But he came, he was, they drove him, he came to the hospital, and he told my father after Yom Kippur, the next day, he said, the Rebbe wants to know if you finished the mission yet. In other words, it was a serious, it wasn't just a nice Gleich uh, uh, Imagine who goes to a hospital. You go to a hospital because you have no choice. No one's going for sightseeing or for missions. You go to a hospital. My father had a stroke. He had no choice. He had to be there. But the Rebbe doesn't see that. He sees a different reality. Yes, that's the ostensible reason. There's a reason. You have to meet somebody. And when you finish, you'll be released. This is a completely, and if you think about it, it's not a small little difference. It's, everything is looked at differently. You know, people think the Rebbe is so demanding, and this. it's not demanding. You see potential in something, you can't ignore it. Like today we know that the atom can release a tremendous amount of energy just from a follicle of hair. You don't see it, I don't see it. Once upon a time, no one even knew it existed. But when you see it, how could you ignore it? And uh, so when we say ourselves, who are we and what are we and what can we do? Yeah, first of all, we don't come with our own strengths. We are come from strengths that were given to us. Our parents, grandparents were midgets on the shoulders of giants. But the Rebbe was not being exaggerating. He was saying, I see something you may not see. So I'm giving you a gift. I'm saying I could see more in you than you think you have. And to me, this is a critical thing, especially in our time and age where we're so beat up. And most of us think that we're pretty insignificant. What's one human being with among 8 billion people on this planet? One grain of sand on a beach. Who cares? But then you understand, oh, the indispensable value of an individual, your contribution, your shlichus, your mission, only you can do, no one else but you. I mean, these are, when they're translated properly, revolutionary messages that are empowering and frankly, would change the world. If every parent, every one of us told us to our children every day what they're capable of and with sincerity and saying, I'm here to help you reach, to achieve anything you want to set your mind to, how many uh, preventive, how many, pre how many ailments and problems would it preempt? Instead of growing into adults saying, I don't know who I am or I don't feel I can do anything, I was just told I'm nobody or someone like that. So, just trying to translate this a little into, uh, I'm not going to use the word psychology, um, into personal growth. L'chaim, l'chaim, I spoke so long, you probably missed it, but uh, I think I did, but okay. 
talk about whether you see the negative or you see the positive, no?
לחיים, לחיים. Every Shabbos in Nishmas. So we say, among other things, that even if we're able to sing the praises of Hashem, and our eyes would shine like the sun and the moon, Ema speaking, Lahedes. It's all still not enough to acknowledge and sing the praises of God. So we're talking about the Bala Gaula, the Alter Rebbe. Has a mimer on this, uh, on this expression. What does it mean? What does it mean? It's one example among many of how Chassidus, the Alter Rebbe especially, besides the Go'enus and the originality, and remember the originality in Teda is not being original, it's revealing that this is the original meaning that was there, takes a, a statement like that, which is very cryptic. What does it mean? I mean, poetically, that the eyes will look like the sun or the moon, but everything is precise. And he explains, in the middle of that, his son elaborates on it. He explains that eyesight, vision, is very different than the sun and the moon on its own. For example, the sun shines. Once God created it as a luminary, it shines. It doesn't need any additional force to shine. It was created, God created a luminary, all the energy it needs to shine light. The moon also shines light. However, the moon needs the sun because it reflects the sun. But the moon has the power to shine at night. That's why there's two luminaries. The eyesight, on the other hand, doesn't have that. You can't see in the dark unless there's another light, a sunlight, a moonlight, or a candlelight. So the eyes don't have that element of being a luminary. Not like the sun and not like the moon. So the eyes need something else, some support. When there's light, then the eyes can see. The ears can't see, for example, no matter what. So the Alter Rebbe says that that's the eyesight that we have right now, physical eyesight. But when it says Mashiach comes, it says, We'll see the face of our teacher. Eye to eye. Many expressions, that we'll see it. Today, our eyes can only see in a limited way. You only see physical objects, and even that, you can only see that far. In Halacha, Samach Mil, 60, uh, what, how do we translate Mil? Miles? Okay, something like that. But it's limited. But then there is 
seeing, like we spoke about before, when you really see something. You know, you have Ainaim Lehem There are people who have eyes but don't see. You can look at somebody and you think on the surface they're very happy. But if you have a more sensitive, you know they're in pain. Same thing the other way around. So once the, the layers, the, the curtains will be removed, we'll be able to see and the eyes will become like the sun and the moon. That's what the interprets. But still, that's still not the highest level. That's why the Maspikim, we're not, it's not enough because the Abish is even higher than that. Because at the end of the day, light is still light. What about darkness? What about the moments in life that there is no light? Moments of pain. Like uh, it says when Hashem came and revealed himself to Moshe Rabbeinu, I mentioned earlier in the Sneh, in the thornbush. So everyone asked the question, the Medrash asked the question, why in a thornbush? God's making an appearance. Why don't you show up in a beautiful apple tree? Or some other beautiful, why in a thornbush? Sneh. Because Hashem was preempting a big question Moshe is going to say to him, to Hashem, oh, you come in beauty. The Jews are suffering right now in Mitzrayim. They're going to want to know if God is with them in their pain, not only when their things are going well. So Hashem preempted and said, I'm going to come in a snap, in a thorn bush that has no fruit. Yes, I'm with you in your pain. So the Altar Rebbe says, a deeper, even a deeper revelation will be that will be even higher than eyesight and higher than the sun and the moon that will experience the divine even in the darkness. So really, no matter where you are in your life, whether things are going well or things are not so well, everywhere there's godliness. I wanted to emphasize this because speaking earlier about what Chassidus does and how it helps us see things in a different perspective. You know, God should protect us all. We shouldn't know of any sorrows and problems. But unfortunately, things happen. And even right now, I know people, both in this room and outside of this room, that are dealing with certain struggles. And we all know struggles are not easy. It's not like you can just tell somebody, okay, everything's gonna be good. The fact is we're emotional creatures and we're weak creatures at times, and, and uh, even if we have a faith and a munna and betochen and we think everything will be good, it's still you need strength. But we need to know and this is what the Alter Rebbe sat in prison. He could have easily, things could have turned very south, very sour. And yet, he understood. And then when he came out of prison, like we sang earlier, he said the Pasuk, Pada Rishalem, Nafshi, not just Pada Nafshi, but Rishalem. That even in the darkest moments, realized, like Yosef did in his prison, that there's a God everywhere. Now that doesn't necessarily console us at times. We've gone through a lot of difficult things and as I said, our bracha and our request is that we've had enough and we should only have revealed good. But just any of us are dealing with some challenge, just know you're never alone. And one of the chassidist things that chassidist taught us, Aid is nisht elent, you're never alone. I heard that after the Rebetzin passed away, Chayim Mushkin, saw the Rebbe for the first time with be doing a seder alone, Pesach. She passed away, Chav Beishvat, talking a little afterwards, Pesach. So, Ari Halberstam, of Hashem Yin Kamdomai, 
So he and his family, they were close somewhat to the Rebbe's house, the Rebbe, the Rebbe's. So he invited the Rebbe to come to their seder. And I think he expressed himself and said something like, that we feel bad or we don't want the Rebbe to be alone. And the Rebbe responded, I'm never alone. I'm never alone. Which, you know, is physical alone, there's other things. But it just, uh, it just uh, gives you a sense you're never alone, he's never alone. He has, I assume, the Friedrich Rebbe with him and he has all the resources he needs. And now that's the Rebbe. But I'm sure, being hearing the story, we are never alone. You know, um, I remember hearing from my father, who was born in Moscow in 1934. So this was Stalin, dark, dark, dark times. And uh, my grandfather, who I'm a name after, Simon, was one of the ten chassidim that, together with the Friedrich Rebbe, made a chrysas bris, a blood oath in Tofresh Pei Beis or Pei Gimel, Pei Gimel, they say, or Pei Beis, essentially 100 years ago, actually, where the Friedrich Rebbe, after Stalin and after the whole Bolshevik revolution, and they were shutting down and aggressively, violently persecuting Jews and closing schools and mikvahs, you name it. So the Friedrich Rebbe, in a secret meeting, called in nine others. He said, Dein Jungit Mimim, or something, Jungit. And he made a vow that till the last drop of blood, we will sacrifice ourselves to preserve Yiddishkeit. Now we're talking about, you know, you're talking about the Soviet Union here. And the Friedrich Rebbe, I mean, how many people did they have already? But there was that, that, that take of that intensity. So... Most of these ten ended up being arrested and some were shot right on the spot. My grandfather was arrested and he was taken to Siberia, sent to Siberia. He ended up surviving, actually. They didn't know that. My grandmother, my father was a little boy. So we're talking about probably six, seven years old when, when he was arrested. His father was arrested. And he was sent off to Siberia. But basically, you know, at that point, he thought it was over. And my grandmother was a young woman. She had a six-year-old boy. So what was she, 30 years old? I don't know, even younger, 27 years old. And she would cry at night and so on. My father told me, I mean, among many stories, that one night, there's a knock on the door, which frightened them. But then they saw it was a chassid, famous chassid. His name was Yankel Shirovitsa. He was an Askin in Moscow. Um, his family name was Yankel Moskalnik. Um, and he walks in, middle of the night, it's late, and he has a big pack, pack, peckle, like a bag, and they open it up, he puts it out, he says, you, you may need this. And my grandmother looked at it, and my father was there, and uh, thousands of rubles, money, he just brought, I mean, I mean, relatively a substantial amount. And uh, that was it, and he left. So I said to my father, I said, he was a relative? He said, no, what kind of relative? He wasn't a relative. We knew him, he was a chassid. And I was like, I said, so this was like a common thing that people, he said, yeah. He said, there were no bank accounts. There were no retirement accounts. What was yours was mine. 
we were going nowhere. You know, you were all in the same concentration camp, of Stalin's concentration camp. So there was no like, you know, future uh, planning exactly and investors and IRAs and all that. And, and I was like taken by that. And I said, so what happened? He says, when we came to America, things changed. His expression, Ishtachas Gafne, Ishtachas Te which on one hand is a blessing. Everyone, this one sits by their vine, and this one sits by their by their fig tree, comfortable. But it also means everyone is in their comfort zone. Everyone's in there has their property. You can't infringe on mine. And I asked my father, so how did that work? Like you know the mindset. So on one hand, he came into freedom, but there was like. You know, that uh, brotherhood, that sense of that we're all one, that you're never alone. You know, so you can live in a democracy and a freedom and be very alone. And you can live in a place that's literally a prison and feel that you're never alone. So obviously we're not looking to turn the clock back and try to replicate those dire circumstances. But I, the Rebbe very often bemoaned this. They said that in Russia there was the Mesidus Nefesh. And now when we're comfortable, you don't have to fight for it. And this is, I would say, you know, when people say Yutas Kislev, how is Yutas Kislev today different than it was last, we'll say the previous Rabbeim, the big difference is Yutas Kislev from the time of the Alter Rebbe till the Friedrich Rebbe, till the Rebbe, I should say, was always dealing with the most difficult circumstances. The Alter Rebbe was in very desirist anti-Semitism the Mitla Rebbe, Tzemach Tzedek, Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashabi, talking about the, the Tsars, and then the Soviets were even worse. The Rebbe was the first Rebbe in 1950, becomes a Rebbe, essentially, in a free world, where they don't have any of these Gzaitis, in America, right after World War II. Yes, after the worst Holocaust and all that came from, that came with but the battle is still a battle. It's just a very different battle. The battle today, the way I would put it, is a battle against, um, you all know the word in Yiddish is called the uh, It's called apathy. Adishut. In every language they have this concept. It's not just in English. It's essentially uh, indifference, apathy. Where, you know, there's always tomorrow. There's no sense of urgency. You know, if you can capture the Rebbe's approach, that there was no such thing. Even though the Rebbe was living literally in a time where he didn't have any pressures. We're not running from enemies. But the Rebbe went to war and behaved and lived and acted as if we have all the enemies around us. The enemy was apathy, not an enemy from outside, from within. And the Rebbe took Yutas Kislev and turned it as a force to deal with this new war. That is how it spells us out today. You know, we, I remember hearing from uh, Professor Baranover, he should have a refush lame, miraculous. He says, when we would fabring a riga, a yutas kislev, I remember he said it was so, so, so moving. He said, we sat in the basement, there was a little window. We had a few uh, milk cartons, a table made out of cardboard, of, of, of a plank or whatever, you know, like whatever. And we had a, a little mashke and some azenas, maybe a her herring or pickle. And we felt, and we had to rotate, stand at the window to make sure nobody's coming. 
So, so the ten of us or eight of us sitting, they would rotate every few minutes, some every half hour, or whatever. Somebody would get to stand by the window, and they would sing along while everybody was singing. And we felt we're talking about now in the seventies or sixties, early sixties, and we felt that the whole world was standing on our shoulders because no one else in the world had to pay that price. It's a skizzle we knew in New York that it was bringing. We had no idea what, there was no connection. We didn't even know what the Rebbe said. But we knew it was basically, there was no hiding. We felt that we were the last ones that are holding up the whole world. The question, my friends, I ask you and I ask myself, can we replicate that type of passion in a world of freedom? That's the big one. I know it goes together with that billion dollar question, can you bring the energy of a young person and the seasoning and wisdom of a mature person, of an adult. It's never been done yet. It's like God wastes energy on the young, as they say, you know, or like the guy that says, I'm too young to know and I'm too old to find out. So it's one of these challenges. I think the Rebbe wanted to achieve that. That's what he wanted. How to bring a tremendous passion of chassidus, even in circumstances when there's no real natural urgency because, like I said, there's no emergency. There's always tomorrow. I saw Yechidah that the Rebbe says to someone, Tavshin Chav 1964. The Rebbe, someone wrote it, typed it up. So the Rebbe says to him that the Jews went through every type of gollus, every challenge. They went through the gollus of Aeneas, poverty, oppression, this gollus, that gollus. And now comes the last of all goals, the goals of Freiheit, freedom. The Ebrister says to Eden, Here is freedom, and let's say with you want Mashiach. Of course, when Jews were in concentration camps or in Stalin, they wanted Mashiach, because that was their salvation. But here's freedom, and let's see with you want Mashiach. And then the Rebbe continues, he says, therefore Mashiach is not going to come from Morocco, the Rebbe says, and Russia. It's going to come from America or Australia, because that's where this Freiheit, Omenus the says of the Hepach, is being used, is being basically misused, being used for to indulge. So let me make it clear, freedom is the greatest blessing. I mean, the Rebbe would speak always, Malchus or Chesed, there's no question about it. But the Eivdin it's Asher, getting lost, you get lost in freedom, you don't get lost in oppression. In oppression, you, your values stay crystal clear. You get the dochim, you get oppressed, you get, you're, you're downtrodden. But Eivdim, you lose your identity. So that's our challenge. Now, listen, here we're sitting, uh, and I don't know if the world is standing on this Fabrengen, but maybe all the Fabrengens put together. And um, I'll just tell you my own trade secrets of how you get beyond apathy. You get yourself stuck in good things and you can't get out of it. You make commitments to people and then people are waiting, and you can't just say, hey, I'm lazy today. So one of the ways to do it is to make commitments, and then you're trapped. I mean, in a good way. And then later you regret it, but too, too late. It's one of the tricks of the trade. <clears throat> so it's not always, you're not always going to figure it out. If you start making too many plans, you're usually going to say, oh, one second, how can I make this commitment? Maybe I have this, you know. Sometimes you have to take the plunge and just do what you have to do. <clears throat> You know, I look at it, the Altrebbe, the Rabbeim, or Moisa Nefesh for Chassidus, the Baal Shem heard from Mashiach, 
that he will come and the Rebbe Rashab says is the beginning of so I look at it as a very simple equation what are we doing to bring when there are 8 billion people on this planet and I say that number very deliberately not just 14 and a half million Kenyabu, 8 billion people because at the end of the day, as the Rambam Paskins, Molaritz, Deus Hashem Kamayim Layam Machasin, Haaritz is everybody, not just the, 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 the Jewish communities. And Layi Esa Kole Elamel Ladasis Hashem Bovat. And what's Dasis Hashem and Mola and Deus Hashem if not the Chsidis? That's how I challenge myself. And as much as we've achieved, what shall I say? I can't say that Chsidis is mainstream and a household name yet. You know, Lahavl, it's not Apple or Amazon or Facebook or what else is there? Um, Google. What's that? Hmm? What's that? Okay, very good. Um, um, but now I know many people say, okay, you know what, because they're selling nonsense. Nonsense uh, goes everywhere. Like I remember it was a chassid used to come once a year to the Rebbe in Tishrei. He would always visit me in the office of the Sikhs upstairs. And I said to him, you know who I am? You remember me? He said, not a shkaitin for a guest in That's what he told me. Nonsense you never forget, you know. So um, I understand that nonsense sells easily. But the truth is, so Emes doesn't sell. So Avram Avinu, who was one single Echad Hoi Avram, he changed the planet. Billions of people follow what uh, Avram taught. Not perfectly necessary, but... So I, I won't accept that. So that's the challenge. That's on a broad scale. You know, I know some of you know me, probably know I couldn't control myself. I'm going to have to talk about the global revolution of Chassidus. It's just, I don't know, I guess I always feel that if that's not achieved, we will have, uh, what can I say, I don't want to say failed, but we have not filled the prime directive. Um, the Rebbe said the uh, what is it now? 32 uh, years already. 2000 was second. It's coming to 29 years of Gimel Tamos. I mean, I don't want to start depressing anyone with the numbers. But, um, so where are we at? Well, let's put it this way. There's a lot of work to be done. So, um, the truth is, this may mean Fabreng and Fabreng and never stop until we get it done. But I just want to throw that into the equation. And uh, I'm not taking away, God forbid, people are Mesa Nefesh, Shluchim, Shluches, Askonim, on different levels, Mesdis, so much thriving. We're not taking anything away from that. The Rebbe never, God forbid, did not appreciate. But when you're looking at the finish line, you always want to see, you know, you can run a 24-mile marathon, and if you reach mile 23 and a half, and you don't cross the line, you know, look... Teams uh, win all the championship, but they don't win the World Series or the World Cup or whatever it is. So all the wins. And when the Rebbe, again, talking about chassidus, you look at the big picture, you want the big picture, and you don't suffice with anything less. So, Misha Yeshle Mona, Reitzim So I uh, think it to myself, the Sutas Kislev, 224 years from Alta Rebbe, what can be done differently? what could be done in addition to everything else to really help move the needle, as they say. I'm open to all kinds of suggestions. Yes, and a good fabrengen. So, but... Uh, 
Can I just say one thing? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, L'chaim to that. Let's hear a few words from Rabbi Shleim. L'chaim. I'm not going to, God forbid, try to compete with the world-renowned Rabbi Jacobson, but Rabbi Jacobson was speaking about how how much the Rebbe did and how much the Rebbe put out with his sikhs and this is Rabbi Jacobson dedicated and dedicates his life to spread the Rebbe's Torah. And I just want to mention, I never met him personally, but I heard very much because Project of the Sikhs I'm very involved in. And um, it's something which is very, very dear to me. A few years ago, we were sitting a few Chaverim, and we were saying for the Rebbe's 70th birthday, oh, sorry, the Nesiyas, what could we do now for, what could we do now for the Rebbe's Tayrus? And we put together a program that in eight years, we could learn the entire project of the Kutusichas, the entire Kutusichas together. Now, the project blew up, and it's, I think it's probably the most popular project that Shluchim, Anash are learning, and it's a big thank you. I'm sure everybody knows project of the Kutusichas, and the Kutusichas that are translated every single week in English. It's a big, big, big avayda. Anybody who's a translator, Rabbi Jacobson can tell you it's a tremendous amount of work. You have to know the Sikha well. You have to know how to bring out the Sikha in English words. And he has a team behind him. And we never met, but today has a Robin. So big, big thank you for all what you do. Heard a lot about you. And Debeshe should continue to give you the kaiches to translate all the Rebbe's tires in English. And uh, we should be Zeicha together to be united with the Rebbe Beni Basar. And again, big, big thank you. Oh. Yeah, yeah, we met before. I didn't realize. Okay, fine. Good. Yeah. I second that. Excellent. L'chaim, l'chaim. Let's sing Anigen.
He could have given it a bigger compliment. That's the point. I want to get your take on this very nice to